It's just after half past seven on Wednesday, the 21st of October 2020. Good evening, my name's Matthew Horsepool, and welcome back to our coverage of the 7th General Assembly of the International Council on English Braille. Today is day four, and it's the third and final day of our themed days. Um, we, we have uh, the theme of Braille Literacy and Learning today. And we have eight papers across two sessions. So if we just have a, a quick look at the programme, we have a reminder of meeting protocols. That'll take about five minutes or so. Then the first set of Braille Learning and Literacy papers. Then we have the second report of the Nominations Committee, followed by elections. Then a break. And then in the second session, we have the second set of Braille Learning and Literacy papers. Uh, and then we have a bit of a break and then we have the second code maintenance discussion. The MC for today is Jen Golden and if Jen's internet should uh, go down for any reason the backup MC will be Dave Williams and the moderator for this evening is Leona Holloway from Australia and if her internet should go down the backup moderator is Shabani Kaushik. Most of the meeting this evening though will be chaired by Francis Mary D'Andrea from the US who is going to be chairing both of the paper uh, sessions. So it's four papers per session. Uh, in session one, we're going to be hearing the following. We're going to be hearing a paper from Patricia Dapache, uh, Study of Braille Fluency in Australia and New Zealand. Cathy Senthgraves and Kay Holbrook will be presenting Inspiring Literacy Using a Balanced Comprehensive Reading and Writing Instruction within an inclusive environment to support Braille reading students. That's a very long and wordy title, but very self-explanatory. Maritza Gonzalez, she's from Colombia, and uh, although she did, she did her master's at Michigan State University, and her paper is Teaching American English Sound to Blind and Low Vision Learners Using Assistive Technology, and there's an element of Braille IPA in that paper. Tina Herzberg and her co-author Penny Rosenblum, and this is the final paper in this session, Dual Media Case Studies. Perspectives on literacy by four adolescents, their teachers and family members. And that's the first block of papers. Uh, the second report of the nominations committee uh, will be fairly short because there's been no nominations from the floor and so it's just an announcement that the slate uh, needs to be elected and uh, there might be an opportunity for Mary then to talk about the people who are leaving the uh, executive committee at the end of this term. The executive committee uh, gets, uh, gets to start its work from the end of the general assembly just to be very clear about that. And after the break, the second set of papers, we begin with Natalie Martin-Yellow and her paper, Factors Contributing to Braille Learning and Reading Performance as Individuals Age. Susan Potter and Sean Randall present Hand in Hand, the Confluence of Braille and Technology in Specialist Education and Beyond. Samuel Fuchs and Tina Seeger from Clovenook Centre for the Blind are presenting uh, technical material in UEB, developing an NLS curriculum. And Donald Fitzpatrick um, and Azada Nazimi, although I think it might just be Donald tonight, uh, are presenting Euromath 
uh, and that is enabling mathematical communication between teacher and student using UEB. So that's the papers, that's the programme, and uh, joining me to talk about them as ever is the co-host for this stream, Holly Scott Gardner. Holly, welcome back to the stream. Hi, thanks again for letting me join you tonight. So we've both had a chance to look through these papers. The way I see this going, we've got, uh, basically, we haven't really got any key themes that are emerging like we did yesterday. But we've got two, I think, quite distinct categories of paper. We've got papers that are presenting a product. And I think the products largely came out of research, but the paper is presenting the product. And then we've got a second category of paper uh, that is talking about just research and research studies. And it's quite nicely split. We've got two products and two research uh, papers in each uh, session but let's take them instead of taking them by session let's take them in terms of product and research so starting with the products and that the first paper actually is dap dots uh well it's not actually called dap dots but it's trisha uh, dapachi's paper uh and dap dots is the product um dap dots being uh, a whole slew of resources predominantly for parents of blind children uh, so it's to there was a there was a realization in Trisha's research that parents are quite good at helping their sighted children to read and write braille but they're not sorry <laughs> sighted children to read and write but they're not very good at helping their blind children read and write braille and so there's a need for resources and so dap dots is the resource um, that that she mentioned um, and that she's created from your point of view does that sort of ring true? Does it seem like there's a need in the market for those sorts of resources? I think there's always a need because one advantage that sighted children have is they get to um, have a lot of incidental learning. So where they're reading and where they're learning things about their environment just because they have access to it, whereas blind children don't have that. There isn't braille on packaging, there isn't braille everywhere they go, and so they don't have those learning experiences. And for a lot of parents who, I mean, most parents of blind children are uneducated about blindness, and that's not a criticism, that's just the reality. They have a blind child and suddenly they're thrust into the blind world when they may have never met a blind person before. So I think there's absolutely a need for these resources to support parents so that they can help their young blind children to learn to read as they would their sighted children. Yeah, and possibly there's a need for blind children to do more reading. I feel like there's an undertone of that in that because there isn't this incidental learning, perhaps we should be encouraging blind children to read and perhaps we need to be a bit more creative about how we encourage blind children to read. Well, I come from a family of readers, so I would agree with you. Uh, reading was a very important part of my childhood, whether that was someone reading to me or me reading my own books. Um, there was always braille books of some variety in the house that I had access to. So I think I was just fortunate that I was surrounded by books and everyone in my family reads. But yeah, I do think you're right. And there will be blind children who are reluctant readers, as there are sighted children. So I know some families, for example, that label things in their house, just random stuff, because their reasoning is, well, a sighted child would get to see 
print everywhere, so let's put braille everywhere for a blind child. And whilst that may seem like an unusual way of doing it, actually what it can do is really help at least beginning braille readers. Well, and it just normalises braille. I mean, I am one of those reluctant readers that you talk mm-hmm. about. Even as an adult, I'm one of those reluctant readers. Uh, I, I absolutely love braille. <laughs> I would not be without braille because it's brilliant for labelling and it's brilliant in choir. Uh, I sing in the cathedral choir at Coventry Cathedral. I would not be able to do that without braille. Um, I have my words in braille, my music in braille. Uh, you know, it's amazing. And um, to be able to read braille notes. And I love studying in braille. Um, quite often if I've got to read a textbook, particularly if it's an important one, I mean, look, quite often I study by scrolling through the internet and reading articles and then I'll just listen to them with speech. But if I actually seriously want to study something, it's so useful to have it in Braille. But I wouldn't just choose to pick up a novel in Braille. To me, that it's just such a such a foreign <laughs> concept. And so, yeah. <laughs> would, you, would you equally, though, choose to read a novel using audio because I feel like you are a classic example of reluctant reader in that you wouldn't even go for an audio but you just don't want to read books so you've got to have reading in another way <laughs> I mean I, uh, sort of but I feel like I, I feel like reading for me is a very passive experience so I wouldn't choose to sit down in the living room in an evening and relax and listen to an audio book you know I wouldn't choose to read braille I wouldn't choose to listen to an audio book uh, and a lot of my content consumption now is through podcasts and through the radio and things like that. So you're right. I don't listen to a, a great number of audiobooks. But listening to an audiobook, I'm more likely to do that than Braille because I can sort of passively listen to an audiobook while I'm doing other stuff. So I can listen to an audiobook while I cook uh, or while I'm cleaning, you know, while I'm hoovering or mowing the lawn or doing any of the other jobs that I do around the house. <laughs> So, I mean, maybe that is a reflection more on how I view reading than, than how I view Braille, because I definitely love Braille. But as a child, having things labelled, I'd have actually got quite excited about that because I, I do love mm. Braille. I just, reading novels is just painful. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, I mean, I think these kinds of resources are great because whilst it isn't necessarily about labelling, that's one way in which parents can, you know, help their blind children because there are braille labellers that have print on them and they may not be the best quality but you think they're fairly low cost as are these resources and I think that's the really important thing is looking at actually how do we make these kinds of resources accessible to all families regardless of their financial situation and knowledge on braille so I think it's really cool I think the more resources that families have to help their blind children particularly help them with reading is is great Moving on to the next product on the list, which is ADEPT. And it's got some funny capitalization in ADEPT, uh, but it's Adaptive English Phonetic Tool, I think. Is that right? I think I've got that right. Adaptive English Phonetic Tool. Um, it's it's Maritza Gonzalez's paper from Colombia. I was really excited by this. Um, I feel like we the, the, the Braille International Phonetic Alphabet exists and it's wonderful. But I've seen precious few resources actually teaching uh, the, the Braille IPA. I mean, there are, there are not many resources that teach the IPA, but like I, I don't feel like there's an introduction to phonetics for blind person kind of book. And I feel like I'd quite like there to be, and there isn't. But these are cards that show the print IPA symbol 
in tactile form and the Braille IPA symbol underneath and there's an accompanying website. And I feel like this is a good start towards teaching somebody who's never come across phonetics before what phonetics might look like and it would at least give them a route to exploring other things. Oh, I think it's so useful. I mean, if you're studying linguistics, for example, you may need an understanding of the IPA. And even as a blind person, if all you get from these cards is, okay, the IPA exists in Braille, and okay, when someone, you know, when a professor talks about a certain symbol, I have a vague idea of what they're talking about. That in itself would make a big difference. I actually don't know the IPA. I am a linguist, but I don't know the IPA. I feel a bit ashamed to admit. I do know that there is a Braille version of the IPA and I would like to learn it. Like you say, I would love for there to be a book, but I do think this is a really positive start and I think it's about creating as many resources as we can, you know, in Braille and really expanding, okay, what what do we offer to Braille readers? And And this is a big step. It's a huge step, and I think um, you don't know the IPA, but it's it's possible uh, it, it's possible that actually you don't know the IPA because there was nobody who could teach it to you. Um, do, do your sighted mm-hmm. linguist counterparts know the IPA? I would presume that they do. So I deliberately did not take a class which would require me to know the IPA because I felt like welcome to the inaccessibility of academia as it is I didn't need to add anything else on top of that because I knew there would just be no one to teach it to me so I was like okay if I have to take an optional module I'm going to take something where I'm working from textbooks and I don't need this which maybe isn't a strategy I would necessarily advise all blind people to follow but I think sometimes you've got to just get through your degree you know Well, it's pragmatic, and I think it it underlines the point that if there were more resources, then perhaps that mm. perhaps there would have been more choice, and and perhaps it would have been able to do the international phonetic mm-hmm. alphabet, and not just in terms of teaching you know people how to read it, but in terms of teaching people how to transcribe it. Um, if somebody came to me and said, "Could you transcribe this IPA stuff?" I would really struggle. Um, I think I, you know, I'd I'd be sending people um, to somebody else because it would take me months and months and months to look up the rules. And even then, I wouldn't have a clue whether I was implementing them properly or not. Yeah, so I think it's important to just increase the resources we have. And that's a really good point about transcribers. I mean, as a blind person, I only have access really to what can be transcribed. And you'll know that there are difficulties as a blind student if you require braille materials getting them in a timely manner anyway so I can't even imagine how difficult it would have been but I think this is a really really positive step because perhaps I could have said okay well I can't work from the same books as everyone else but actually if I have this fundamental grasp of what it is I can use handouts and maybe I can work directly with professors and have some more time spent you know talking to them in office hours and and that would have just been enough to get a student I think a motivated student through but of course there's always a need for more but I think this is a really positive thing the third product which we don't get to until sort of halfway through session two and I think it sort of speaks for itself really is the NLS technical course being developed by uh, the the Clovenock Centre for the Blind This is a technical course to follow on from the NLS literary course and it's to teach transcribers how to transcribe a whole range of technical stuff from uh, 
maths, science, right the way through. There was even a section on cartoons. They've got a whole section on teaching transcribers how to transcribe cartoons, which I thought was absolutely brilliant. Uh, I, I think the US has it right here. I, I think certifying transcribers is a really good idea. We don't do it in the UK. I feel like we should. I feel like there's a lot to learn from the US in terms of transcriber certification. But in terms of this paper, there's, this is just an explanation of what the course is. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, I'm not a transcriber, so I don't feel like I have the right necessarily to comment. But I think that when you set a certain standard, then you know, okay, if a transcriber has taken this course, you can know what they can and can't do, or at least in theory, what they should be able to do. Whereas I, I think we have excellent transcribers in the UK, but you could reach out to four transcribers and find that they have different knowledge about different things. And in some ways, that's wonderful. But if we there was some way of certifying transcribers so that you knew, okay, they have expertise in this area and setting a standard. Perhaps that could be quite helpful. Hmm. Well, and four different transcribers in the UK would, would transcribe a document in four different ways. So there's not really a standard way of transcribing Braille in the UK. And I do actually think that that's problematic. I think we need to be better at saying, actually, to do a heading, this is how we prescribe doing a heading you know there's no choice in this if you want a level one heading this is how you do it you know and I, I really do think there needs to be some work done to standardize and and some work done to actually accredit people even if we don't properly standardize there needs to be some work done to accredit people because I remember when I got my first job as a transcriber it was in a, a re reasonably small school and let's be honest they didn't really know what they were looking for so I came in and talked a load of techno babble about braille embossers and I got the job but I didn't get any training on the job in, in terms of how to do it. I, I enjoyed it. And so I looked up how to do it. And I'm a Braille reader. So I knew how other transcribers had done it. And I learned from them. But really no training. And, and my successor is not a blind person and doesn't have that Braille background. And so is picking things up and, and doing the best that she can. But actually, an accredited training course would actually be really useful. Yeah, I think it would be very helpful. And I also think it would um, provide transcribers with something where they can say, well, actually, I, I have taken this course, you know, and I have had to prove that I have this skill. So it's also about providing people with documentation of a skill they have, which, as we know, when we're looking for jobs, that's actually quite important or can be certainly if you move into another field even if it's not transcription the fact that you hold a certification in transcription can still carry some weight because it actually shows that you did something to earn that moving on because i'm conscious of the time it's uh, coming up to 10 to 8 the final product which we also talk about this will be the final paper in session two is euromath from the uh, university of Dublin, I think. Was it the University of Dublin? Central University of Dublin, presented by um, Donald Fitzpatrick. And I think you had some thoughts on this. Yeah, I think it's like Dublin City University. Dublin City University, um, that's I think the it's one. a really... Yeah, so I think it's a really good thing. Um, I'm actually interested in it, not because I'm a mathematician, because I'm not. Um, I'm interested in it because I think what it does is really allows for flexible learning. So when you look at this paper, you see that the product they've produced doesn't 
require you to use UEB. You can use UEB, but you could also use a screen reader or you could also be a sighted person and I think that's really good. Or you could be a large print user and it produces resources that can also be embossed into hard copy and it allows for a blind person to produce basic graphics and I really like the flexibility of this. Um, I like that it integrates very well with Braille. I think it's just an area in which there's lots of questions about, okay, how can a blind person produce mathematics, particularly when they're in school, in a way in which their teacher, or even when they're in university, if they're producing basic mathematics, in a way in which their professor can read. And you have a lot of blind people who are not very technical, but perhaps who could learn this system well enough to do that. And it, I mean, I know for myself, I'm kind of dreading some of the mathematics parts of more advanced research. Um, not from the maths itself, I like maths, but from just knowing, okay, I've got to find a way of doing this which works for me and also works for all the sighted people who are going to read my papers. And I would love something that took kind of the worry out of that, honestly. Yeah, both ways as well. Taking maths that someone else has written and mm -hmm. being able to read it and then also being able to write mathematics in response in Braille and have it accurately back translated into something that reads well. And I feel like that's that would actually put us at a slight advantage over sighted people because we can just do direct Braille where sighted people can't do direct typing. So um, I feel like that would sort of level the playing field in multiple ways, not only because it gives us access to an ability to make maths, but because it allows us to make maths very, very quickly if we're proficient in Braille and, and probably as quickly, if not slightly quicker than a sighted person could mouse click in equation editors and so on. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I think that's really important because we will, we do often, unfortunately, have to take more time in other areas. And that's just the reality of being a blind student. And um, that it just is as much as we don't want it to be right now. So I think if there's some way in which actually we can do something quite quickly, then that's really, really important. And I also think um, it has the potential to put the minds of um, teachers at ease as well a bit because they think okay I've got a blind student I really don't know how to do any of this and lots of school districts and lots of universities are under-resourced in terms of good transcription and good knowledge regarding blindness so actually if if sighted teachers and professors felt like this was a system they could use themselves you cut out that second step of okay there aren't any resources in order to produce this so now what do we do? Moving on to the research papers, and this was sort of really interesting to look at some of the research that, that came out, but I'm not sure how much comment I have on any of the research. It was, it was good quality research. Um, it was good, but I think most of the research that came out of these papers was, uh, this was really interesting, but we now need to do some more research to work out what those results actually mean. So we had the research from uh, Cathy Senthgraves and Kay Holbrook on love of reading versus love and bra love of braille um that the Rosenblur Rosenblum and Herzberg on dual media uh case studies Natalie Martiniello on age related uh vision loss and the impact of uh, braille reading uh, in impact of vision loss uh, in old age on braille reading and Sean Randall and Susie Potter from New College Worcester on teaching braille electronically um was there anything out of any of that research that really struck you as you know, particularly 
interesting as, as somebody who's actually in academia and doing research yourself. Yeah, so there's two papers which I'm going to talk about very, very briefly because of the time. First is um, Natalie Martiniello's paper relating to um, factors influencing braille reading performance as people age. So I think that's really important because we look a lot at the reading speed of braille of blind children learning braille and that kind of thing. We don't tend to look at, okay, how are adults learning braille? Are they learning braille? Should they be? And actually, as more people go blind in later life, because we have higher instances of age-related blindness, we do need to be looking at that. And actually, we need to be looking at how we can produce good braille readers when they come to braille later on in life. And it's absolutely possible. But in order to do that, in order to produce good um, teaching pedagogy, we actually need to understand what in, what factors influence this and we can't do that until we have research like this and the second one I briefly want to talk about is the paper that came from New College Worcester just a note to say that I think that's actually very very interesting because as we've moved more towards inclusive education and putting blind children in mainstream schools we've actually lost a lot of research that surrounds specialist schools and that kind of environment so I think it's really important to bear in mind that not all blind children are in mainstream settings and actually how can we perhaps learn from things that are going well in mainstream but also things that are going well in blind schools and really bringing that research out so that we have I guess a more representative um body of research that represents where are blind children being educated. Absolutely. There's some really interesting research to come out of this and some some interesting discussion, I'm sure, that will happen over the course of these two sessions. One final question before we start to keep a bit of a close an eye on Zoom. Um, I was really struck in um, Senth Graves and Holbrook, the statement of love of reading versus love of braille and we touched on this earlier when i was talking about reading <laughs> i love braille but i don't love to read and i just felt like it was really encouraging to see that a paper had actually drawn that out because i don't think i'd actually thought about it in those terms until i saw that paper I think, yeah, I think it basically normalises the experience of being a braille reader in that we know that not all sighted people like to read, but we presume they like being able to see print because they can do things like go to the supermarket and, you know, find the products they want. So we don't make statements like that really about sighted people because we just presume it to be true. And actually, I think it's really important to say this, that just because a blind person finds braille useful doesn't mean they will love reading and vice versa so i actually think that whilst it might seem like an obvious statement it really isn't because we haven't actually um looked at the blind community in this way so i view it as whilst i want all blind people to both love braille and reading i do see it actually as um an acknowledgement that the blind community is is as diverse in our interests and in our experiences of braille as the sighted community is in terms of how they approach reading. 
You're listening to live coverage of the 7th General Assembly of the International Council on English Braille with Matthew Horsepool and Holly Scott Gardner. The time, two minutes to eight. And in the background on Zoom, I can hear people uh, testing their audio, as is uh, normal for these sorts of events, I suppose. Uh, we've not quite got round to letting the observers in yet. The delegates are still testing their audio and uh, testing breakout rooms, just in case we need them. Although I think it's uh, sort of unlikely that we're going to need breakout rooms. Uh, if we do need them, it'll be fairly late on in the meeting uh, during the elections. Uh, as I say, the theme for today, Braille Literacy and Learning, and this is uh, the, the longest day of papers. There will be eight papers in total, and basically not very much business. There'll be the Nominations Committee report uh, presented by Mary Schnackenberg. There'll be some elections and there will be a further discussion of the Code Maintenance Committee. It was a very good discussion of the Code Maintenance Committee yesterday uh, in which we talked about the rule book and uh, indexing the rule book and indexing the guidelines for technical material and we had an update on what's been going on and future charges and how the Code Maintenance Committee is going to work going forward. They talked about setting up a Zoom meeting for the Code Maintenance Committee which is uh, which is quite useful. Um, today's discussion from the Code Maintenance Committee will be talking more about the guidelines for technical material, specifically about technical material, and we might pick up on some of what happened yesterday and discuss that in a tiny bit more detail perhaps, but they've only got half an hour for that discussion, so the discussion hopefully will uh, will go a bit more snappily than the last one. Uh, well, I mean, it'll have to because we We'll, we'll lose time if we don't uh, and uh, it, it'll break up the, the papers quite well the papers will be chaired by Francis Mary D'Andrea and uh, we're going to do it slightly differently rather than taking each paper in turn and uh, asking questions we're going to actually get all of the papers summarised first and then open it up for general questions just in the interest of, uh, of keeping time Time now, eight o'clock, and in case you wonder why I'm waffling so much, it's because I'm just waiting for uh, the observers to be let into the room, and uh, at that point I will fade up Zoom and uh, get going with the coverage. I think I can see observers being let in now. Um, I don't recognise some of these people being let in. We'll see what that looks like. Uh, oh yeah, we're starting to see people join the meeting. So um, I'm going to fade up Jen Golden, um, who is the MC for this evening. Leona Holloway is the moderator. And uh, we're going to go to the 7th General Assembly of the International Council on English Braille. All right. Well, I I think that we will uh, we will begin. I hesitate to say a chime because we're all in different time zones, but it is... Um, uh, it is three o'clock in the Eastern time zone in uh, Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, where I am. So with that, I will, um, I'd like to welcome everyone. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, happy autumn, happy spring, wherever you happen to be. Welcome to day four of the uh, seventh General Assembly of the International Council on English Braille being hosted via Zoom, but uh, by the United Kingdom, by um, RNIB and UCAF. So with that, um, I'm going to take care of a few housekeeping details. My name is Jen Golden. I am uh, from Canada, which I guess I've already just said. Um, 
I'm going to begin by just highlighting a couple of the, uh, just some of the uh, Zoom protocols that uh, you may need, especially as we have maybe some people that might not, may not have been here on previous days. Firstly, the need for timeliness, just to highlight that we do have a pretty tight schedule and lots of excellent uh, papers and exciting things to discuss. So we are uh, needing, needing to be fairly um, sort of strict when it comes to keeping time. So I'll be the uh, overall timekeeper. So when a session, when there's sort of five minutes remaining in a session, I will advise and you'll hear some uh, Perkins Brailler sounds, they don't come through uh, the, the mic very well, so I'll also speak five-minute warnings, a one-minute warning, and then I'll advise when time is up. We realize that this is a personal choice, but we do encourage if you're uh, willing to, if you'd like to turn on your video, particularly for presenters and, you know, if you're when you're speaking, um, you may want to do that. Everyone should keep microphones muted when not speaking, just to keep the background noise to a minimum. Observers are automatically muted. And during discussions, uh, what will happen is that uh, the delegates are co-hosts, so you can mute and unmute yourselves uh, when you're going to, when you'd like to speak. Please uh, unmute yourself and just state your name and your country. And then um, if you could just sort of wait to be acknowledged um, by the chair of uh, whichever session uh, you, you know, is, is going on at the time. And observers, when there's time for observers to discuss and comment, you can um, raise your hand. And momentarily, I'm going to just refresh uh, with, you know, how that's, uh, how you can do that. Um, and the moderator who uh, for this um, for this day is Leona Holloway. She will uh, she will acknowledge your raised hand and uh, unmute you. So to toggle your own microphone on Windows, press Alt A. On a Mac, press uh, Option A. On iOS devices, you'll find the mute button in the bottom left corner of the Zoom app. Um, on a phone, you would press star six, and that's to mute and unmute. We hope that time will will allow for observers to comment. And and again, just um, when you need, to, if you are an observer and you need to raise your hand on a, on a PC, Windows, it's Alt-Y. A Mac, again, Option-Y. On iOS, uh, you'll press the More button and then press the Raise Hands button. On phones, it's star nine to raise your hand. Um, the moderators, as I said, will unmute you and ask you, um, invite you to speak, will invite you to speak. The chat box function is disabled throughout the conference, and we just, we thank you for your understanding. Uh, with that being said, um, sorry, I'm just going to turn over to my agenda now, and Today, uh, we are going to be discussing uh, papers on learning and literacy. So this promises to be a really exciting day here at the uh, General Assembly. Um, as a Braille reader, I have benefited tremendously from the educators in my childhood who understood and appreciated the value of Braille. So I'm really excited about what, uh, what we're going to be discussing today. And at this point, I would like to introduce the... Um, the chair for the uh, the upcoming session is Francis Mary Dandria from the United States. So uh, we've got uh, the second report of the nominations committee coming up as well, and some discussions on uh, the uh, 
code maintenance committee guidelines for technical material, but that's all to come along with some exciting UK postcards and braille bonuses. So with that, I would like to hand things over to FM. Thank you, Jan. And greetings to all of you. It looks like we have a wonderful turnout today. I'm um, speaking to you from a surprisingly balmy Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in the United States, the garden spot of the United States. Um, it's a surprisingly warm 22 degrees Celsius, 73 Fahrenheit, which is unheard of at this point in, um, uh, in, in the fall of Pennsylvania, but I'll, I'll take it. I have been so looking forward to our day today and these sessions on Braille literacy and learning. Um, as Jen said, we have two sessions, um, and in between the sessions, of course, there are the, <clears throat> there's the, um, the, the business meeting of the nominations. Um, in each session, we have four papers, um, and while I know that we could talk forever about all of these papers, um, <clears throat> um, these excellent papers, we uh, only have an, about an hour for each session. So as Jen said, time is um, uh, of, uh, of the essence today. So we're going to do these two sessions panel style. And that is we're going to hear um, five minutes from each presenter uh, in, in order. And then we will open up for questions from the delegates and then from observers. Um, so that way your questions can be addressed to any particular speaker or to, to all the speakers. My suggestion is um, uh, just jotting down any questions that come to mind while you're listening to our, our speakers. Um, that's what I'm going to do because as I demonstrated yesterday, I obviously <laughs> can't keep anything in my head anymore, but um, uh, just as you're, as you're listening and uh, something, um, uh, comes to mind, jot it down. <clears throat> um, I'll give each presenter five minutes to present and that will leave us a solid half hour for, for discussion. So um, that's, that's good. We'll take the papers in order um, and I'm going to, because we have to um, keep time, I'm going to give a little signal um, at, at the five minute mark. Um, I was trying to find a pretty sound. So how about this? Let's see if you think a lovely sound. So that's great. Um, <laughs> all right. So, um, and as, as uh, Jen said too, um, she'll let us know when we're getting to the end of our discussion time uh, by giving a signal um, at the five minute, one minute mark. All right. With that said, um, our, the um, we have the four four papers in this uh, session eight, and the first uh, paper we will hear from um, Trisha Dapici um, in Australia. And Trisha, you should be able to unmute yourself. Yes, FM. Um, all right, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I carried out research around Australia and New Zealand in 2016 and assessed 73 students with their oral reading fluency in Braille. The research, research results were as suspected as had been shown in similar studies. 
Um, of the students, only one student exceeded the cited norms. The rest were behind the cited norms. And the gap widened as the students got older. It is generally sought, thought in literacy that reading fluency is directly related to comprehension. However, our students who are not as fluent as their sighted peers are doing well in schools. So is this statement the case with Braille reading students? And I think there's um, a huge scope for further research on that note. Um, <clears throat> what I'm gonna concentrate on is anecdotal observations I made throughout the research. One, the majority of reading accuracy errors were braille reversals. And two, parents invest a great deal of time and money in their sighted children's literacy. However, they may not have the resources or knowledge to be able to do the same with their child who is blind. So I acted on these two um, observations. Since the research, I have made resources for parents and new graduates that may help them um, with the teaching of their young babies, uh, early childhood and uh, early schooling. So the first one was reversals. I've created a reversals workbook that goes through a number of common reversals whereby the child reads the one that is constant throughout the um, page, and then the distractor is thrown in more and more as you go down per line. There are YouTubes, three videos that address reversals, um, FDHJ, uh, R and W, and E and I. Plus, there are 3D printing files that create interactive so not interactive, um, moving parts to uh, address the reversals issues. Now, on the second observation about parents not necessarily having the resources or the knowledge <coughs> to teach their young ones, I've created 54 books that takes you step-by-step step through the UEB code, from the alphabet all the way through to short forms. In addition to that, there are six tactile graphics kits. These were originally designed for the Nomad graphics um, computer. However, they can still be used without the audio files. There are a further 16 3D printing files, a lot of them for fun and games, noughts and crosses, dice, etc. And there are six checklists related to the UEB code, as well as reference worksheets. <clears throat> This is still a work in progress. This website will grow. Now, all these files are available for um, you to download and make yourselves. And depending on the uh, section that you're downloading from, it might be embossing, it might be using swirl paper, um, but it's up to you to make them yourselves. And they're all available for $10 Australian. That's approximately five pounds approximately six euros, and all the files, etc., can be found at the website called DAP.DOTS, D-A-P-D-O-T-S, dot 
ridbc.org.au. I'm going to say that one more time. D-A-P-D-O-T-S dot R-I-D-B-C dot org dot A-U. Thank you very much for having this opportunity to share this. Um, it's been a pleasure um, one doing the research, but more importantly, making resources to hopefully rectify some of the issues that our parents and teachers have. So thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> thank you, Trish. That was, you had four seconds to go. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> okay. Thank you. We're going to move to the next, oops, stop timer. Okay. Um, we're going to move then. I wrote down about five questions, so um, <laughs> I think we'll need more time. We're going to move to the second speakers in, in our panel this um, for this session, and that's Kathy Semft-Graves from the American Printing House for the Blind in Louisville, Kentucky in the United States, and Kay Holbrook from the University of British Columbia on uh, inspiring literacy. So you two should be able to unmute yourselves. Please start. Great. Thanks very much, Francis Mary, and thank you all for uh, for letting us talk about this. I want to begin by setting the stage for the paper that we submitted. Um, Kathy and I, along with a passionate team of teachers, have worked together for many years in developing a curriculum designed to teach young Braille reading children to read and write. Um, our paper includes guiding principles for developing this curriculum, and we thought very, very carefully about the underlying philosophical and pedagogical underpinnings by um, of the ways that we addressed um, all of the uh, complexities, the instructional complexities of this work. But beyond this, um, we collectively care very, very deeply about children's progress to become readers and writers. And we try to tackle the deep issues of literacy for this population. So Kathy's going to talk to you just briefly about what we have mentioned in the paper that we submitted. Hi, everybody. Um, so in the paper, we list some key reading skills, including phonemic awareness, phonics, vocabulary development, reading fluency, and comprehension. Children who will use Braille as their primary literacy medium have additional instructional needs, such as learning effective hand and finger, finger movements, reading and writing using contracted Braille, and background information about vocabulary and experiences they may not have had as many opportunities to be exposed to as their sighted peers. Building on Patterns is a systematic, comprehensive, balanced program written by qualified, highly experienced teachers of students with visual impairments who are also actively teaching. In Building on Patterns, learning the dot configurations and rules governing Braille are positioned in the larger context of learning to read and write. Most teachers and transcribers learn Braille as an adult, so they already know how to read and write, unlike young children who are learning these things along with Braille. As discussed in Trisha's paper, there are multiple strategies to engage children in literacy activities and nurture a love of reading and writing while teaching these skills. We do include a variety of games in the curriculum's lessons, including several that can be played with classmates. And some of the other strategies included are songs and poems in almost all the lessons. Some of these are original and some we've had to get permission to use. 
Um, there are a variety of books and stories for interactive read-alouds and independent reading for older students. And these include high interest and fun vocabulary words. We also include characters who are blind or visually impaired in some of the stories. There are activities that connect to the primary story in each lesson and ideas to involve other people in reading activities. Suggestions for experiences to inspire literacy outside the classroom, including at home, are also in each lesson. Plus, there are writing activities that engage the child's imagination to create their own literacy projects, including small books or writing a personal letter, invitation, or story that can be shared. So I hope that it's clear from what Kathy has just described that building on patterns tries to address literacy in many different ways, including skills, concept and use, and a love and enjoyment of reading. Throughout this process of submitting the paper, I've thought several times about a poem I would like to read to you. It's by Walt Whitman and it's called When I Heard the Learned Astronomer. When I heard the learned astronomer, when the proofs the figures were ranged in columns before me when I was shown the charts and diagrams to add, divide, and measure them. When I, sitting, heard the astronomer where he lectured with much applause in the lecture room, how soon unaccountable I became tired and sick, till rising and gliding out, I wandered off by myself in the mystical moist night air, and from time to time looked up in perfect silence at the stars. This poem always reminds me that while we're focusing on the very, very important details of our work, analyzing reading miscues, monitoring progress, and all of those really, really important things, we must never lose focus on supporting, valuing, and listening to children's love and enjoyment as they learn to become passionate readers and writers. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you very much. And you had 16 seconds to go. I can stop this. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. All right. Thank you very much for, for I mean, again, my head is buzzing and I'm sure you all are too. Our, the, our next panelist is Maritza Gonzalez, whose presentation is on her paper, uh, Teaching American English Sounds to Blind and Low Vision Learners Using Assistive Technology. Maritza, you should be able to unmute yourself. Can you listen to me? I don't know. Yes, there you are. Thank you so much. Okay, okay. I don't know. <laughs> I don't use this very often. So, okay. So, thanks for the opportunity uh, to share my project with you. Yeah, my name is Maritza. Now I am here in Colombia, so I think that I, I am the only participant from Latin America. Um, basically, this project is called Yes, American uh, Teaching American English Sounds to Blind and Low Vision. Uh, learners using assistive, assistive technology. Um, basically, this project is the result of my final thesis project in Michigan State University. Um, so we create basically with my advisor, <laughs> we create um, like a phonetic tool, it's called ADAPT. ADAPT is the acronym of Adaptive English Phonetic Tools. Um, basically, our idea is to teach phonetics to blind students. Why phonetics? Because, okay, we are in my country, we are Spanish speakers. Um, you know, Spanish is easier because you can write and pronounce the sound the same way, so it's easier. But when you have to learn English as a second language, uh, the challenge is bigger because we need um, to have more clarity or 
to have more phonological awareness, yes? And the only way to do it is with the um, international phonemic alphabet symbols. So um, this information was not available before, unless here in my country, as a teachers, we didn't have enough resources to do it. Um, it's really, it's not common to teach phonetics in my country. So me, in blind people didn't have anything to study something like this. So we created ADEPT. ADEPT basically is a project that is uh, formed by two components. The first component is a set of 45 cards, 3D cards. So in each card, you can find the symbol. So it's a tactual symbol. Um, each card also has the information like a sequence, a sequential number to locate the information in the website. And also has the typographical description of the symbol. For example, uh, the name, the number one A is um, lowercase p with aspiration. That is the P that you pronounce when you have uh, initial letters like you know, potato or pig or yes, that kind of P that we don't have in Spanish. So basically the students can touch uh, the material. Um, all material has the braille notation uh, we took that notation from the ICB uh, guidelines that, uh, yes, um, after that also, they can go to the website. There is the second component of the project. In the website, they find the rest of information like the manner and point of articulation of each sound. So how to produce the sounds, yes. Um, there are some sample words and some uh, recordings that people can listen to understand better the comprehension of the song. Our idea basically is to uh, improve the uh, inclusive nature of uh, in the language learning and teaching classroom, especially in my country where English is a second language or a foreign language, sorry. Um, so with these two components, the set of 45 cards on the website, um, we were here, we in 2019, the summer 2019, we did a pilot study here in my country. So a group of 21 blind people, they uh, were, we were studying English, um, they were beginners. And we mm, basically, we had 10 weeks of training. Uh, in, that, in that time, they learned some of the most important aspects of phonetics. Um, also, they manipulate the cards and they work in the website. They could make some transcriptions and they had, um, I know, more like they were more clear about the importance of phonetics and the importance of phonological awareness to understand better or to develop better their skills. So we did a pre-test and a post-test um, in the quantitative research, the quantity data uh, we found that yes, the ADAPT tool was very nice for them, was very meaningful because they could understand better the songs that they produced in that process. Um, they improve a lot of the results, especially in vowels. We focus in vowels because it's the most typical aspect for Spanish speakers. Um, yes, at the end of the research. So um, yeah, we conclude that it's very positive to have tactual and auditory input, you know, uh, to have different channels to, uh, communicate with the students. Um, so the tactual with the cards, the auditory with the website. Um, also, it's nice because uh, we designed this material using universal design for learning. Um, so even side students can use it. And the idea is to create a collaborative learning process or collaborative learning environment in the classroom. Um, yeah, I think that that's the most essential part of my of my piece. So thank you. Thank you very much. <clears throat> that was very interesting. And see, 
everybody is like right on time, Jen. <laughs> you guys are great. <laughs> <clears throat> okay, fantastic. And then our, and that's a, a stop. All right, you can stop now. Okay. Um, and that's a great lead in to, we had two papers from um, kind of practitioner, practitioner, uh, practitioner oriented. We had this research. And then our fourth paper of this session uh, is presented by uh, Tina Hertzberg and uh, Penny Rosenblum on uh, some research done on dual media uh, readers, as dual media case studies. So you guys can. Well, to better understand, thank you. To better understand the process that students with visual impairments experience in learning and using Braille as a literacy medium, Penny and Rosa Bloom and I conducted interviews in 2017 with four triads. And each of the triads included a student um, from grades six through 11, their teacher and a family member. We also explored the role of technology in the literacy experiences of the students. And we wanted to share just a little bit about the students. Anna was a repeating sixth grader and she reported that she was unable to see print and in her own words, unless it was enormous like in advertisements. The second student was Brian. He was a ninth grader who was having difficulties accessing information in school. But when we asked him about Braille, what he said is, I like that I'm the only person at school who knows Braille. I think it is cool to know a different language. The third student we interviewed was Chad, and he was a sixth grader who was not efficient with either print or Braille. And he told us, I feel like I read faster in print, but the other kids are faster than me. I get tired with print, so I get the assistant to read to me a lot. The fourth student was Dina. She was an 11th grader who attended an online school and was duly enrolled in university courses. At her very best reading speed, she read 28 words per minute in Braille and never achieved efficiency to the level that she had with technology. She told us, when I use auditory, I listen to 260 words per minute. And when I read Braille, well, I read a lot slower. We tried to get me ready to take a high stakes test in Braille and it just wasn't working. So of the four students that we interviewed, none of them had a Braille reading speed of more than 30 words per minute, and each was struggling to use Braille and technology to keep up with their classes. Their teachers reported that they did not use just a single commercial available curriculum or product. And what was very similar to two of the previous presenters is that they thought that motivation was one of the most important considerations. And so they really used their instruction to make sure that it was motivating for the students. And so it was very different because they're motivated by different things. All the family members that we talked with were supportive of their children learning Braille and using technology. During the course of the interviews, the four students recognized that their Braille reading was slow and told us this, and that they felt like there was much to learn in order to succeed academically, both now and in the future. And so our takeaway message is, the educational team, including the student, needs not just think about the school year this year, but also about the student's future Braille and technology needs. 
We also think that families and educators need to design programs to support students in becoming efficient braille readers and writers in a short time span so that they truly can integrate braille as a tool in their literacy toolbox. Students and families also need emotional support as a student moves from the transition from print to braille. We also believe that students can benefit from meeting role models and having ongoing interactions with them and that they can benefit from intense technology instruction to ensure proficiency and comfort in using the technology. Thank you. Thank you, Tina. Penny, did you have something you wanted to add? You have a little bit of time left if almost Tina wants. Um, I was just going to share that I think for us, one of the biggest takeaways of, of this study was that these students wanted to learn Braille, that educators and family members were, were behind them, but building the level of efficiency that they needed to be successful in middle school, high school, or in Dina's case, in college with Braille, um, in spite of a lot of efforts on everybody's part, was um, still resulting in them not being um, able to read Braille at the rate that they could use technology. And so, you know, we both kind of left thinking, uh, we spent a lot of time in our field talking about dual media learners, print and Braille learners. And we really are wondering if our focus um, for children who are making that transition really needs to be on tri-media learners because that technology piece is so important um, in today's day and age to be able to be competitive, whether it's an employment or whether it's an education. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you. Oh, wow, wonderful. So I, I filled up um, a page and a half with questions and, and comments. Um, <laughs> and um, I, I think, we heard a lot of the same themes about the need for fluency, uh, the need for resources, um, and how important motivation is for for our for all of our learners, whether they're um, learning. Uh, Braille uh, fr and from the beginning as, as young children, if, as uh, older um, students who are transitioning between uh, print to Braille or dual media, um, whether they're adults who are learning English. And of course, um, I'm interested in Maritza's um, uh, resources as well, because of, we have um, many um, second uh, English language learners in, in this country and I, in, in other countries as well. Um, so that need for resources and the need for support from from families and from um, their uh, from peers, I think, is is also really important. Um, I'm wondering if there are some questions from our delegates first to one or any of the or to all of the presenters. You can mute. Uh, unmute yourself. Jen Golden from Canada. Go ahead, Jen. May I thank you, FM? Um, I've been really hesitating to ask this question because I don't want it to 
come out the wrong way, but whenever I hear or read uh, studies on rates, um, braille reading speeds, I a couple of things come to mind. And one is is sort of, I guess, maybe a frustration that I've dealt with as a lifelong braille reader where I, I always have people assuming that I can't read quickly and um, sighted people generally just sort of, oh, well, you know, oh, you can read so fast. That's amazing. And all these sorts of things. And th the reason that I'm mentioning this is that I... I'm sort of wondering, I guess, if any of you, maybe um, Tina and Penny in particular, but any of the presenters, do you have thoughts on why um, reading speed? I, I can kind of understand when someone's just learning Braille or if they learn it when they're older, but I just wondered if you had thoughts on what might hinder the reading speed. Well, this is Penny Rosenblum. And I think one of, as a, I'm a low vision person and my reading speed is not um, commensurate with, with typically sighted people, which is always a challenge for me. Um, but I, I think for our Braille readers, it's that idea of not being able to um, get more than what's under those fingertips and sighted folks, you know, can get chunks and can quickly skip ahead, um, make predictions. And so, um, some of those strategies that that print readers um, can can utilize aren't um, available just because of the nature of Braille. Um, and I think one you know one difference with the the students we talked about that you you pointed out in your comment, Jen, is for 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 some of our students who um, like the four children in the case study started out as print readers. There's typically there's time where prints quote unquote not efficient for them. So they're getting behind quote unquote in their, their learning because they're struggling so much with print before the decisions made, well, let's switch to braille. And then we have this time where we're trying to ramp braille up, um, but we're trying to keep them up academically. And, you know, I, at least in the case of these four young people, you know, is that really the most efficient way to have them um, be able to, to be on equal footing, so to speak, with their, their peers. And I don't have an answer to that one. I'm just throwing it out there. I don't know if Tina has other thoughts. Thank you. I just, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, excuse me. Um, no, I was gonna add, cause I agree with Penny. And then the one thing else that I would add with it is that it seemed like there were so many competing demands on the students' times, because not only were they trying to keep up academically to learn Braille, but then multiple pieces of technology. Um, really only Dina was really proficient with her technology. And even that she was, because she was now enrolled in college classes, really having to kind of figure out some new things that she hadn't figured out before. But the other ones were, I mean, they just had so much to learn. They were learning the technology, the Braille, and trying to keep up academically. And so I think it just seems like there was a lot on their plate at one time. And a couple of them also, um, I, I think there was also some emotional component for them and their families about losing additional vision and that print wasn't as efficient for them as it had been at one point. And so I, I wondered if it was really a lot of factors instead of maybe just even one or two. That makes sense. Thank you. I, I mean, I, I didn't have the vision loss component as a child and not very much uh, the verse of Braille when I 
got a little bit older. I'm kind of dating myself. So I guess that could be, I just wanted to devour books. And so maybe that helped you. I just, I was just curious to, to get that perspective. So thank you. I wonder, um, Trish, if you had something to <clears throat> add since your study looked at the students um, in New Zealand and Australia, um, were, th um, were those students who had started with Braille or had added Braille later or a mix? Uh, we separated the dual media from the Braille readers. Um, most of the Braille readers had been Braille readers all their life. Um, I'm wondering too about the physical aspect of reading Braille. It's a, a motor activity. Um, there's things like friction. You cannot get the gestalt of the text as a sighted reader would. And I also wonder about the neurology of it, which neurological pathways are being used for Braille readers that are not usually used by um, anyone previously. So you're creating different neurological pathways. Francis Mary? Yeah, go ahead, Kay. This, this is Kay Holbrook. Um, I'm struck by Jen's um, last statement. I just wanted to devour books. And so I think that that engagement and engagement not because a teacher tells a child what activity they're involved in, but that engagement. And that's what Kathy and I tried to kind of at least bring bring into the mix is that personal love and Jen, I loved the I loved what you just said and the experience that you had. Um, and I think that that does make you a better um, reader as you and writer. If you want to write, write. If you want to read, read. And um, so it's interesting that these all kind of pull together. All these papers pull together nicely. It's um, I, I since several of you have mentioned the the issue of motivation, I do think that is something, and we we certainly know, the, the research indicates with print readers um, that the, the, what they what they refer to as the Matthew effect is that the, the, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. In other words, students who are excelling at reading um, are uh, do more reading and they that means they practice more, they get to see more words, they get to um, have a greater vocabulary, they are doing more of it, and so therefore they get more hours of practice. And, that, and that's right, and they're more successful, whereas students for whom reading is difficult um, yeah. are less engaged in reading and are less um, uh, willing to practice it because it's it's harder. So I do think that motivational piece, and I think um, it would be interesting to look across all of these studies that we talked about is of hours of, of practice, um, how much time is actually spent in, in Braille. Um, and Maritza, I was going to ask you if, since, um, because I have the floor and I can do this. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, Maritza, you mentioned that this was uh, a 10-week study with these, these folks who were in this um, ADEPT um, uh, program. 
how much time and practice was involved um, in in your study, and and how much might you um, recommend, or what were some of the indications for for success as far as? Yeah, mm, unfortunately, really, we had very few time to practice because mm. um, you know phonetics. So imagine 45 symbols uh, for just 10 weeks is very few. We spent together, uh, we were in 10 sessions of three hours per session. That definitely was not enough. One of the complaints at the end of the study was that they needed more time to understand. Um, because yeah, basically they could understand the shape of the figures, they could know, they could learn the braille representation, but how to associate with the production. So the oral skills need time to be developed. And 10 weeks definitely is not enough time. So unless I think that one semester trying to understand better what is the difference between a diphthong or a monophthong or how I can pronounce, I don't know, the shoah or what's the difference between um, different ways to say book and good and moon. So it's, yeah, it needs more time. Definitely. That's right. And since English has so many um, ways of pronouncing the same letters as you just said <laughs> different yeah and sometimes you omit some words some sounds for example uh, i don't know work is w-a-l-k and you know in spanish we pronounce everything so we can say walk but it's work so what happened with yell it's, it's <laughs> like this you know it's very difficult because basically we have to memorize everything i think so i don't know yes <laughs> thank you um other delegates have questions Please, it's Sean from the UK. I'd like to ask Maritza a question, if I may. Uh, if that's please, please, Sean. Thank you, um, Maritza. One of my um, long, long-time friends was trying to learn English as a second language through Braille, and her speed really increased when she began using contracted Grade Two Braille because she was able, I think, to associate the the groups of sounds with less Braille cells. So rather than learning about a, an ing as, as a separate three separate you know uh, letters she could hear the sound as one contraction did, did you find any sort of evidence or is there any sort of a, a research that you know about that sort of corroborates this or or are we just sort of um is it something no one already knows about is there is there yeah. maybe yeah yeah it's a good idea really we didn't work uh contractions because okay um, just 17 okay let me think yes yeah, 17 uh students were blind totally blind and they knew how to write and read in braille but four were low vision and really they know how to write in spanish so <laughs> basically the difference is very huge between spanish braille and english braille so maybe if i wanted to teach contractions in in english uh, so braille, contractive braille, I think that we have to start thinking more in a literacy process first and then try to work with bilingualism. So maybe both aspects are um, both, um, yes, aspects are very close, literacy and bilingualism. But here in Colombia, we don't have material. Uh, so first we have to think how to print in braille using the contractive braille, because here we don't have that system. So it's totally different. Great, thank you. And basically, to a future research could be very nice. I make a comment, please, Susan Potter, UK. Yes, please, Susan. I just wanted to go back to, so I'm sorry, I'm not familiar with you all. I just wanted to go back to a comment that somebody made um, who said uh, these people have a lot on their plate to learn. Um, 
I've long held the view that um, perhaps we don't, and I'm speaking for where I work, but perhaps we don't give enough credence to um, the psychology of somebody, perhaps not only having deteriorating vision and perhaps the anger and upset about that, um, perhaps there are other factors. Um, in, in my case, in Sean's case, um, our students are in special school and they're mostly boarding. Um, and so perhaps they're treated differently by their family. Um, and I, I've long held the view that actually all these factors make learning far more difficult than perhaps we give credence to. Um, and that perhaps it's not just that Braille is more difficult if you've been a print user and you really want to hang on to print, which a lot of my students tell me they do, but it's all the other factors as well, the differences, the, the fact that they're away from home, the fact that maybe their families have broken up and is that their fault and all that sort of stuff. And I, I really think that, um, I, I quite like to see a study on it really because I, I think this can have huge bearing on uh, learning and motivation. Thank you, Susan. Um, Tina, I think that was your comment about the emotional component. Was there something you wanted um, No, I, I agree. I think that, because um, I've, I've thought that before, but it was just very apparent as we listened to them. And, you know, uh, like there was one of the, um, the students whose mom was worried, like, how is she going to keep, like, um, her personal information for her health? How is she going to easily be able to keep track of that? And and she was the one who was probably struggling the most with her technology. And then there was, um, you know, another one who, like I said, he, he several times talked about being slower than his his peers, whether he was reading print or whether he was reading in Braille, and then he got so fatigued and so tired. And, you know, another one, um, I, Penny, you may want to share this one, but he, he was so excited to find out that Penny had low vision. Um, matter of fact, I, I can't, how long, I ended up having to leave the call and they talked far longer, I think, afterwards, um, because he had so many questions. Yes, he really did. And, um, you know, I, for that particular student, that was um, whatever child's name was with the C. We made a we named for them, and I can't remember his name. But um, this was a young man who I believe had star guards, and he. And I'm probably wrong on that too. You would think he'd read the. No, paper. you're right. He he did actually. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. But he had started to have problems in in late elementary school. Yet he was in high school and he was playing football, um, American football, and he you know people would question him like how can you be blind but you're playing football so he was really struggling with identity um the only role model he had met with a visual impairment was a six-year-old blind child who read braille much faster than he did and he was so impressed with this six-year-old and and told us about that and for me one of the things that really came out of the study um, and other work that I've done is, is the need for our students to connect with other people who are visually impaired, both ad adults or, you know, 
uh, children who are much older than, than them, but also children around their own age, um, and, and to learn about other people's experiences, because many of them really are hungry to find out, well, how do other people do this? And finding out they're not the only one. Um, FM Dina Mudli from uh, South Africa. Yes, please. Um, looking at the uh, fluency of reading, I think there's many factors that actually influence uh, reading speed. First of all, you know, it would be whether the person was actually taught to read properly. Um, you know, some people tend to uh, move their the, the fingers up and down a cell instead of just across the cell. And, and that definitely slows you down. Also, you know, there are other uh, factors that impact on reading, such as whether someone reads um, two-handed and whether uh, they, their right hand, uh, you know, continues from the middle of the line to the end, while the left hand actually then drops down to the next line and starts, um, you know, reading that line. Also, things like, um, you know, uh, how sensitive their fingers are and, and those sort of aspects. I think there needs to be a study around that as well. And, and the teaching of uh, the correct reading techniques uh, may, may, may shed better light on this. Thank you. Thank you, Dina. <clears throat> and um, I would add there has um, been, a, there have been several studies on um, hand movements that, that certainly uh, bear out what you're saying as far as um, uh, hand efficiency and um, uh, that proper movement to, to, with less scrubbing and backtracking and uh, that kind of thing. I don't know about finger sensitivity. Does somebody know whether they're Natalie from Canada? Oh, thank you, Natalie. Hi. Um, okay, so I have so many things to say, um, <laughs> but I won't. Um, it's all been really fascinating. I, I am going to talk a little bit about tactile sensitivity when I give my talk, so I, we could come back to that. Um, there are there are studies, however, and one of the papers I published that kind of synthesizes a lot of that work, I think, could be of interest to ICEB, so I can forward that along. Um, but I had a question, maybe more um, regarding the fourth study, but really for anyone um, who presented today. Um, just going back to this idea of motivation and how key it really is um, to developing a love for reading and reading fluency and reading related skills. And I'm thinking back to when I was younger and I was probably part of the, the last generation that didn't have access to a braille display <clears throat> when I was young. And so I read a lot of braille um, but I would read whatever was given to me. I didn't choose really for myself because I didn't have the option. I would just read whatever library books came to my door. Um, and so I, I'm sure that with Braille displays now, young children have access to a lot more choice. And I'm wondering when you think about that piece about building self-awareness of your reading preferences and making independent choices and thinking and learning more about the things you like and making those decisions. Um, I guess for educators who, who presented today, whether you have any thoughts about whether Braille displays are being used to the extent that you feel they can to build that 
type of concept in young readers. This is Penny Rosenblum and um, not specific to the, the case study that Tina and I did, but um, we've been analyzing data from a, a study around COVID-19 called Access and Engagement. And we had 455 children, uh, many of whom you know, um, were, were, were blind. Um, but comments from the, the teachers of visually impaired students from several of them was that um, during this pandemic where it would be easy to send Braille electronically to the students, uh, students were asking for paper Braille. They didn't want to read Braille electronically. They wanted Braille under their fingertips. And um, in some other research projects I've been involved with, I've, I've found that as well. And it, you know, in today's day and age, it just surprises me when kids are like, no, no, I, I hate reading on that thing. I want, I want Braille under my fingertips. And I'm like, really? Wow, blows my mind. Um, but they like writing Braille on their, their note takers. So they prefer to read, read hard copy, but they're fine with input um, on, a on a display. That's been my experience with some students. Thank you. Yeah, no, that's it's really interesting. Um, I know as a Braille user, I also prefer hard copy Braille, um, but you're right that it, it gives so much more option and choice when you're reading on a Braille display. So. Yeah, um, I think Jen was about to speak, so I'll stop talking, but thank you. Sorry. <laughs> thank you, Natalie. Sorry, I didn't want to cut you off. I just wanted to say that it's the five-minute warning. Thank you, Jen. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Um, I see Kathy either... from Australia. Yes, Kathy. No worries. Um, just going back to looking at um, students who are transitioning from print to Braille, I think one of the one of the questions is is how do you provide what what I would call meaningful Braille material for that older Braille learner, where their interest might be to read Harry Potter, but their Braille reading knowledge might be still still at the cat's head on the mat. You know that they just can't what they want to read and what they can read are two different things. So so it's it's that trying to find that balance of trying to of finding what is meaningful material for them, which engages them with reading. Kathy, this is Tina Hertzberg, and that actually does kind of remind me of just a couple of things. Um, for like one of the students, they were really motivated by, um, they have this restaurant they love to go to, and so they, she brailled the menu, and so that way she had the whole menu, she knew exactly she could, would look over it before she went. And so she shared this with us. And so I think you're exactly right. So for her, it was like, hey, this is my favorite restaurant in the world. And I want to know everything on the menu and be able to make my own decision without really having to, to ask anybody else. Um, so in the other one, we had one of them that said, for the first time ever, they had written a report for their science class. And now they missed the bus. They live more than five miles away from their school. They walked to school because it was so important to them to be able to turn in that assignment because they had written it in Braille. I was like, that's motivation. So that's the part of these kids were like really motivated. Um, but yeah, I, I do think it is that kind of like that challenge of because you don't want to, like you said, I sit here, you sit here. And so, yeah, how do we really um, address that motivation, but then also get the practice that they need? Dave Williams in the UK. Yeah, yes, Dave, please go ahead. 
I, I wonder whether we have looked at opportunities to read Braille. So that, that menu example there is, is, is a really good one. And as a blind dad, you know, who raised a sighted son, I was really struck when he started to read. He wanted to read everything. We would go to the bus stop. He would read the timetable, you know, even if he couldn't read it very well, you know, and it really reminded me that actually sighted kids, you know, grow up in a world that is covered in print. And we heard from a teacher yesterday who said that she has, I think, six or seven Braille displays. And how many displays does a sighted child have access to? And how many Braille displays, how many opportunities throughout the day at home, at school, you know, with friends, with family, uh, does a child have uh, the opportunity to access Braille? We focus a lot on, you know, obviously reading speed and access to books, but that incidental Braille, how important is that? Has anybody really looked into that? You know, things like labeling, greetings, cards, that sort of stuff. Thank you. <clears throat> Sorry, okay. that's their one minute warning. <laughs> oh no, and we have so many more comments that people want to make. I know. <laughs> I'm very sorry. It'll be a long minute. I'll count slow. Um, because I see that there were two hands up. Thomas, you, uh, Thomas, where did you go? Thomas and, and Mike have got their hands up. Um, yeah. uh, let's do Thomas first then. And can you find him in the list and unmute him? And then we'll yep. do Mike. Thank you. Thank you. That's Thomas Simulani from South Africa, SNCB. I wonder if it was there a study done around learning Braille when your language acquisition device is active versus when you learn Braille when your language acquisition device is inactive. And remember, my experience when I was a teacher told me that learners who have learned to read and write Braille when they were still within the age where the LAT is active, they were fluent enough in reading Braille. Same applies to language acquisition. I should think some findings need to be done around that. Late, those who, who start Braille late, they tend to be slowly as compared to those who start with Braille from grade one or grade up. I think there's an issue around language acquisition device being active and also inactive. Thanks. Thank you. Um, Mar Marita, do you have a, a comment about this since I know language acquisition is very of interest to you? Well, I think I listen. So, <laughs> yes. About uh, the language acquisition, um, my God, really is, uh, I depend, um, it's the, uh, depends on the L1 in this, in this case, for example, I speak Spanish, so as a first language. Um, yeah, for blind people in my country, and I think for all Spanish speakers, it's essential to have unless Braille or any literacy system to understand the spelling. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, it, the problem, or I don't know, it's not a problem, but really the most difficult thing here is that English has different ways to be written and pronounced. So if you need to learn a language, definitely you need to have something, uh, can be Braille or anything to understand how to write, you know, to understand the letters that compose any word. So it depends a lot also, um, you know, if you are blind and you know how to read and write in Braille, it's nice, but if you don't have any system 
is very hard just uh, orally, you know? So, yes, that's the question. Thank you. And we, um, Mike, how will we have just, we have less than a minute, but please, we'd like to hear your, your comment, your question. I presume you can hear me. Yes, sir. Yes. <laughs> this is marvellous. And I, I, I warmly greet you again, as with yesterday. Would you rather I left my contribution questions until the later session? Because I don't want to hold things up. Oh, thank you. If you, if you don't mind, if you could, could do that. Not that in the least. I don't want to get unpopular with you all. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you wouldn't happen. do that, Mike. But I, am looking, I am looking at the time, and so, um, and I, I think we should wrap up session uh, yes. eight and move on to the next agenda item. Um, but yes, we will have another hour um, la later on uh, to talk about the other um, the other papers. So perhaps, if you don't mind, that would be lovely. Thank you very much, Mike. Thank Super. you, FM. Um, at this time, we, I'm going to um, hand things over to Mary Schnackenberg, who will give the second nominations, um, nom sorry, the <laughs> second report of the nominations committee, and this will be followed by elections. Um, I have a couple of responses for uh, Dave Williams' comment, but I'll try to, from my background, but I'll try to save that for session nine as well. Just want to leave you all with one final comment, uh, food for thought. At the General Assembly in 2012, I had a conversation with some delegates about a possible braille display that would have only one cell and then the, the cell would just move underneath your fingers. And most of us actually said we would find that very constraining because a lot of braille readers don't just read one cell at a time. So a conversation on technique would be fascinating to have at some point. So I'll leave you with that. And with that, I it's uh, gives me pleasure to once again introduce Mary Schnackenberg of New Zealand. Over to Thank you, Mary. You. Thank you very much, Jen. I presume you can hear me? Yes, we can. Oh, um, right. Um, I'm really sorry to have um, been the person responsible for, for curtailing the earlier uh, conversation. I, I didn't put my hand up to comment, but... Um, but it was fascinating. And I want to thank all the teachers. Sometimes um, you're doing doing things that you never intended to do, um, including making some people feel a bit more comfortable with their memories of childhood, growing up, learning Braille and being not terribly good at reading it aloud. So thank you very much for, for all your support. Now, today, um, I'm going to review the um, the names and roles of the people on the incoming executive committee. I'm going to talk about the people standing down and then I'm going to move the adoption by the General Assembly of the slate, the list of names and real people who are going to be on the incoming executive. So on day one, I went through the slate, the list of names for the executive committee as provided for in the constitution. I called for any additional nominations for positions on the executive committee. At the beginning of the second day, uh, I advised the General Assembly that no additional nominations had been received. Here now is the list of names who will look after us in the new executive committee and look after the future of Unified English Braille for the four-year term from 2020 to 2024. 
Now the officers are the incoming president, Judy Dixon from the United States. The president is deterritorialized upon election. Immediate past president, Christo de Klerk from South Africa. If the proposal to amend the constitution is adopted, the position of immediate past president will become deterritorialized. Code maintenance officer, Kathy Reeson from Australia, the code maintenance officer is deterritorialized upon election. Vice President Ilka Steglin from Ireland. Secretary Francis Mary D'Andrea from the United States. Treasurer Jen Goulden from Canada. Public Relations Officer Maria Stevens from New Zealand. Then we have members at large, James Bowden, United Kingdom, Geordie Howell, Australia, Anchevene Nechituni from South Africa, and the vacant position representing Nigeria. We very much regret that even up to, the, uh, even up to today, we have not yet been able to establish direct communication with Jean Obi's member organization in Nigeria to confirm their country's nomination to the executive committee. Now, if you read the nominations committee report in your papers, you will find biographies of each of the executive committee members with information about their work with their own braille authorities and also their involvement with ICEB. We say farewell with very warm thanks and appreciation to two members who are stepping down from the executive committee, Phyllis Landon and Leona Holloway. Phyllis Landon from Canada was appointed chair of the code maintenance committee at the midterm executive committee meeting in 2010. In 2012, following a change in the constitution, Philip became, Phyllis became the code maintenance officer, a deterritorialized position. She continued in this role for a second term from 2016 to 2020. Phyllis advised the nominations committee that she wished to step down from the executive committee. In her role as chair of the code maintenance committee, Phyllis has oversight of the UEB rule book. Work continues on revision of the guidelines for technical materials as well. The code maintenance officer presides over debate and discussion and leads the crafting of amendments to rules and guidelines until consensus is achieved and changes are authorized. A challenging task which Phyllis has carried out with considerable skill and patience. Leona Holloway from Australia served as public relations officer from 2016 to 2020. She advised the nominations committee that she was not seeking another term on the executive committee. Leona strengthened the ICEB website, established a strong social media presence um, on Facebook and Twitter, 
and initiated a quarterly newsletter, publishing eight of them. The work of ICEB is now much better known in the international Braille scene. And we get a glimpse of that this week with people from um, Iran and Spain and elsewhere um, dropping in, um, the Netherlands dropping in to check out what we're up to. This week, we have seen both Phyllis and Leona helping ICEB and its members in their respective roles. And we anticipate their ongoing support one way or another. A very warm thanks to you both. Now I want to talk about my own colleagues. I wish to sincerely thank the members of the nomination committee who worked with me, Darlene Bogart and Mandy White. Their contributions in developing a representative slate as we've worked together so that our new executive can lead the work over the next four years has been tremendous. There's a deal of negotiations that have taken place to reach where we are today and everyone involved is thanked. And the final thing I wish to do is that I'm very pleased to move that all members on the slate assume office at the close of the 7th General Assembly on the 22nd of October 2020 at 2200 UTC. Please, uh, may I have a seconder for that resolution, for that motion. Jen Golden from Canada seconds. Thank you, Jen. I think um, we, we actually don't have a formal process, I suppose, in terms of uh, the, um, uh, the way the Zoom system is working, but I'm, I'm sure that if someone's unhappy about that, they'll, they'll raise their hand. So I think we could take that by consensus and, um, and as unanimous. So thank you very much, everyone. There's also, um, I think we need to be really proud. There are not that many organizations around the world that have four-year terms. Um, and uh, perhaps the only organizations are places like the World Blind Union and, and, and some countries that have four-year terms for their parliaments. Uh, and in those cases, in, in, the in the case of parliaments, governments, everyone gets paid. Remember that everybody on our executive committee is a volunteer, as indeed we all are when we're meeting this week at the uh, General Assembly. Um, some of us are lucky enough to have employers who allow us to meet, but um, others are um, not financially supported. And so we're really grateful to our executives, our executive committees over very many years, and the many other people who sit on this, that or the other subcommittee, who give their time voluntarily um, for our work. And it's because their passion for literacy and numeracy through Braille that enables them to keep going, even when sometimes you kind of wonder why. Um, and so I really want to thank you all sincerely for giving your volunteer time and and for valuing um, what it means to be literate and numerate in reading and writing through Braille. Um, I conclude my report. Thank you.
Thank you very much, Mary, and uh, thank you to all of you um, and to your committee as well. Um, because we have uh, about 12 minutes uh, before our next item, um, and I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, Judy, but if you, as the incoming um, president, would like to say a few words, you have some time. So please feel free to go ahead if you'd like to do that. Thank you very much, Jen. I'm really, really happy to become the next president of ICEB. Uh, this is going to be an exciting four years. Uh, tomorrow, uh, I will be the person introducing the new executive committee, and I will have much more to say about the next four years and some thoughts about where we might go and things we might do and my own personal reflections about Braille. Braille's been such an important part of my life. I'm another one of those people with uh, multiple Braille displays and, <laughs> and lots and lots of paper Braille. I, I had to buy a bigger house just to get it all in. <laughs> and uh, so this Braille is just incredibly important to me and 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 like Mary I was having fond memories of my braille teachers and uh, the the experiences I had learning braille and I'll tell you a bit more about that tomorrow but I will uh, I'll, I'll thank you so much Thank you, Judy. Um, I think what I'm going to do because um, our we have such great discussions about um, literacy and learning and we've still got more of that to come we're a little bit ahead of schedule now which means that we can maybe have a little bit more time in discussions and um, technical material and other fun and exciting things that are to come so uh, i think right now we will head into our five minute break i, I hesitate to say any times once again because we're, we're everywhere but um at the beginning of the break, we are going to have um, another postcard from the UK. So um, we'll be back in five. And in the meantime, Leona, if you could play the postcard, that would be wonderful. Thanks very much. You're listening to live coverage of the 7th General Assembly of the International Council on English Braille with Matthew Horsepool and Holly Scott Gardner. And yeah, we're about 15 minutes ahead of schedule. The time in the UK is 9.16pm. And uh, so the, the slate got elected unopposed. Uh, that's great. We heard from Mary Schnackenberg, uh, who gave a a very moving report about the people who were stepping down from the executive and the work that they had done. And then uh, we also had some really interesting discussion uh, about the Braille uh, papers, the first set of papers. I think there were two things. There were two themes that came out of it for me, Holly. Um, one of those themes was reading speed. And the other one of those, I suppose, was kind of, uh, I guess the best way I can describe it is the relationship between language and uh, so phonetics and braille contractions. Uh, is that how you're feeling and which one do you want to take first? Yeah, I, that's very much my perception as well. I think let's talk about reading speed first. Sure. So, I mean, my, my perception on this, I actually really appreciated the question Jen asked, which was, well, more of a comment about 
you know, the focus on braille reading speed being slow, and I do think it's very difficult because I think we both have to acknowledge that many braille readers are slow without falling into the trap of saying that braille is slow, because I don't think they're the same thing. No, uh, and I think that's true, and I think it comes into the point that Dave made as well towards the end about incidental reading and the fact that as blind people we just don't get very much. I was amazed when he talked about his son like wanting to read the bus timetable. Yeah, that's very normal for small children. That's very normal for small children just to like to read stuff. And I remember as a very small child, I mean, I started to learn Braille when I was two. I was lucky that I had some things in Braille, but I would read the same things over and over again because that's all I had. Whereas sighted children, they will read bus timetables. They'll read food packaging they'll read the address on letters that they you know their parents get that they will read cereal boxes just anything and we unfortunately as blind people don't have that and i think actually i really appreciated dave's comment as well that perhaps this has an awful lot to do with it which is something i sort of mentioned earlier on the stream you know the lack of incidental learning that blind people have and the need for that yeah, and the other thing that I think came up very early, and we didn't really dwell on it, which I think was a bit of a shame, really, but the what what Trisha Dapici mentioned about the reading speed gap between blind and sighted people widens as children age. Mm. It's certainly a problem. So no children read well, I say no. Very few children read very, very quickly straight away because sighted children are also learning to read as a blind children. So you you will have in a reception class at school some sighted children coming in who cannot read. And you'll also have some blind children coming in who cannot read. So they're starting at the same point and they learn their alphabet and some may not be that quick, but really you see by the time children go into secondary school when they're 11 or 12, suddenly sighted children are reading very, very quickly and blind children don't seem to catch up and I do think that is a concern and I, I I would agree with that point I think what concerns me is we can't um imply that will always be the case I think we have to look at how to change that yes and I'm looking forward to some papers in the 2024 general assembly that maybe pick up on that research and <laughs> uh, and and do some research into how we could change that um so we've only got a few minutes. We've got one minute, Jen's just announced. Did you want to talk very quickly about the relationship between phonetics and contractions? Um, We can do. I mean, I don't know if you have anything you really want to say on it. I mean, not really, other than it was an interesting discussion, and I think uh, it, it ties in with research that's been done not as part of this General Assembly about, for example, um, when we use contractions and they don't sound like what they should sound like, like when we use the T-H-E contraction in mm -hmm. theatre. And I think it would be really interesting to do some more research into that uh, side of using contractions and what that relationship is between contractions and, and phonetics. Yeah, I definitely appreciate more research. I mean, I always appreciate more research. I, th I think it's very interesting because I've never really had that problem, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to cut you short because we are the, about to start know, back. Okay. So uh, yeah. here's Jen Golden with the second session. ICEB 7th General Assembly. We're going to continue on with more great uh, d discussions on Braille learning and literacy. So without further ado, I will 
hand things over to Francis Mary DeAndrea and we have um, well we have 55 minutes but we may uh, we are about 10 minutes ahead of schedule so um, we may have a few extra minutes in there for discussion so over to UFM. Thanks Jen. I'm also thinking about that um, <clears throat> maybe we could split this 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 bonus extra time with Kathy because I I imagine there's probably going to be some discussion about the, the GTM as well at the end of the day. <laughs> I was thinking the exact same thing. So we are uh, on, on the same page as it were. Very good. Okay. Well, excellent. All right. So we have another fantastic um, panel for this session. And we'll, um, we'll start with um, Natalie Martiniello and her paper on uh, factors contributed to Braille learning and reading performance as individuals aid. So, oops. So Natalie, on, on to you, Melby. All right, can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. All right, so I'm keeping my camera off because I'm not exactly in front of it. <laughs> so, um, all right, so I will just touch on some very brief highlights on my, this is doctoral research on Braille adulthood and aging. One thing I wanted to say really quickly is that when I submitted um, this paper, some of this work was still ongoing. It's now complete. Um, two of the three uh, studies have been published. And so I can forward along the full results um, after this meeting. Um, but one of the things that I talk about in the paper is that I explored the facilitators and barriers that are encountered by adults and seniors who learn Braille later on in life. And this isn't something that has received very much attention. I'm hoping that this can start a broader discussion. We've talked a bit about it as well yesterday. Um, that this is an important topic to, to highlight in future. But what, what I found is that participants really described the Braille learning process as consisting of a lot of personal, institutional, and social factors that influence their experience. And so I'll only highlight one or two right now, but one of the things that I found really fascinating is that prior identity really emerged as important. So people who really identified as readers, as you know, being very connected to the physical aspect of reading, found that Braille really allowed them to connect with a part of themselves they feel they had lost before vision loss. And so it's this idea that you can use audio to perform many tasks, but that won't necessarily allow you to reconnect with that part of yourself you have lost, won't exactly allow you to address that gap that you're feeling um, after vision loss. And so um, from a practical perspective, I think that bears um, thinking about as practitioners who work with adults and seniors, that it's not just about task or even efficiency in some cases. Um, at the institutional level, participants all highlighted funding programs that don't, don't take into account the needs of adults, the lack of braille displays that limit um, motivating materials for adult learners, and also the stigma that some practitioners, perceived stigma among some practitioners, that older adults would be too, uh, would not be able to learn Braille. So we can talk a lot about that more in the discussion. But one of the things is that when you look at the research that's been done about Braille on Braille and aging, um, a lot of researchers have tried to determine whether the factors that decline with age 
whether measures on those factors, your tactile skills, your motor skills, your working memory, whether that can predict your ability to read Braille. And there's a lot of problems when you do things like that, when you think about Braille that way, because like print, you can't really reduce Braille to one skill. Um, and so in a follow-up study, I assessed tactile motor cognitive skills in a sample of participants between the ages of 23 and 88. I also looked at their Braille learning history, um, among other things. And one of the things that emerged is that although these skills all decline with age, age alone doesn't really seem to predict your ability to learn Braille or to use Braille efficiently. And what really emerged is that three factors were especially important. Your tactile acuity, um, your, the, the amount of Braille that you read, and your Braille learning age. And so the amount of Braille you read is important regardless of what age you learn Braille. And so that, in some ways that seems evident to us, but it connects well with previous points I mentioned, with, which is that adults often don't have those opportunities to practice and reinforce those tactile skills. Um, and so we can talk about this more in the discussion, but hopefully um, um, that provides a bit of a, a summary of my work and I'm happy to answer any questions. Oh, thank you. Um, well, I, I wrote down at least three questions for myself. So, <laughs> but the next, um, the next books on our panel are um, Susan Potter and Sean Randall. Uh, and uh, Hand in Hand, Confluence of Braille and Technology in Specialist Education and Beyond. So you should be able to unmute yourself and... Well, hello, um, I'm Susan Potter and I work for New College Worcester, which was um, mentioned by James in his postcard. Um, and I'm a sixth form tutor and head of Braille at the college. And my name is Sean, Sean Randall. Uh, I am the IT support uh, teacher at the college, uh, which basically means I prepare students for both school and outside life with their access technology needs. Um, quite a diverse range of technology, really, from everything from braille displays to iPhones, uh, almost anything that talks gets put on my desk, including one day, a memorable day, a talking microwave. I don't know why I got given that, but because it spoke, it landed on my desk. Uh, my other role is the careers coordinator post, um, which uh, is more of a, an advisory role really to help students sort of analyze the, the career prospects. Uh, I, I'm totally blind myself. I'm a, a father uh, and someone who's gone through um, specialist school at the end, but also mainstream at the beginning. So I've got experience of both and I use I use my visual impairment relentlessly as, as part of my job to show students what, what can be done. So why did we write this particular paper? Well, um, when we uh, knew about the call for, for papers, uh, Sean and I had a bit of a chat and we've, we've worked together. We've been asked to input in professional days and workshops and things. I personally was taken with uh, two things. Well, three things, really. I was taken with the uh, generational gap. I am, as it says in our presentation, old enough to be Sean's mum, literally. 
And also I was taken with our differing educational backgrounds. And also I was taken with the um, the individuality we had to place on every student really to um, balance their braille with their technology and to enable them to have a toolkit that really worked for them individually. Um, my impetus really was the fact that students come to me and either they have very little experience of any sort of braille technology or what we see a lot of is students who come with only ever having had one piece of kit in its entirety so rather than perhaps learning about different operating systems and having a laptop which is a more mainstream thing or, or a mainstream tablet nowadays they will have been given something like a braille note taker which has been sold to them and, and their families and educators as a one-stop solution for everything uh, and I wanted to see the viability of that. And also, of course, to analyse the, the changing patterns in Braille usage, uh, as, as uh, Susan said with the generation thing. Um, she it was very much a paper Braille user, and I was very much a, a digital Braille display user. And I wanted to see if those trends had changed or increased or not um, with our, our young students who range in age from 11 to uh, 19, uh, early, early 20s, perhaps. So we have a wide range of students, some uh, of them come in in year seven, so they're about 11 years old and they've learnt Braille in primary school and they're flying along and some of them have got technology as well. But we do have other students who have been in mainstream schools and used ever larger and larger print and suddenly it becomes obvious that they can't use print anymore. And so they can come to us at a late age, by late age I mean year 12, which is uh, 16, 17 maybe, um, they're wanting to do their A-levels, they've got much more important things to do than learning Braille, however they don't have a working medium because they haven't been introduced to Braille at an earlier stage and this is what we're about really, um, teaching students with all sorts of needs and um, all sorts of starting points and it's literally one student to the next student. There is no uh, uniformity about what we can teach and how we can teach. Uh, I'm going to gazump Susan here because we have a plan to what we we're going to say, but we're into our last uh, 10 seconds. So I just wanted to say briefly to finish, if I may, that we, we wrote the paper before lockdown happened, before the, the COVID-19 situation. Uh, and it was a, a, a trial by fire for us, really, of our theories and, and thoughts. Uh, as to exactly what would happen uh, and uh, it would be really good to actually now in retrospect write something extra because uh, we've had a lot of data more data than we could have possibly dreamed of uh, practical real world data about this uh, which all happened post paper uh, so sorry to to break our structure uh, Susan but we've, we've hit the time I'm afraid no problem yes thank you and I'm anxious now to hear um, your your further thoughts about about uh, about what you what you have found, <clears throat> um, and also more thoughts about um, lack lack of access to variety of of tools, etc. But we'll move on to right now our um, 
our third uh, paper in this this panel. Um, and the the last the last two papers are <clears throat> referring to more to uh, the the numeracy uh, issue that Mary Schnackenberg uh, mentioned in her in her remarks. Um, and so this next paper is uh, Sam Folks and Tina Seeger uh, from uh, the United States on technical material in UEB developing an, uh, a curriculum for transcribers. Thank you, uh, Francis. Uh, my name is Samuel Fuchs, and I'm joined here by my colleague, uh, Tina Siga. Uh, and we're going to try to condense um, what was about four years into about five minutes. Um, so uh, our paper uh, basically outlines our development of uh, a technical transcriber course that we developed the, for the National Library Service, or NLS. Uh, and the course itself is meant to fill the gap in the National Library Service course structure uh, that existed after the implementation of UEB. So just a little bit of background about what NLS courses are and what they're meant to do. Uh, in the United States, uh, the uh, kind of professional standard for Braille transcribers is a certification process. It's a course you take. Uh, it's operated on behalf of the NLS by the National Federation of the Blind. And uh, these courses are pretty much the standard for if you're going to produce Braille uh, on a federal or state level or for a lot of school districts, a transcriber has to go through these courses to ensure basically that they know uh, what they're talking about when it comes to transcribing the material and hopefully you know, raising Braille standards. Uh, but there was a gap in terms of technical materials, uh, especially with a lot of the UEB mathematics, uh, but also with a fair amount of literary materials. So in 2016, uh, Clovenook began uh, working with the NLS to author a new course uh, that contained all of these different materials. It's 14 exercises. I encourage you to check out the paper to see more of the specifics, uh, but it runs the gamut from uh, everything from how to transcribe uh, foreign language in UEB context, uh, how to place Nemeth IPA music in UEB context, lots of code switch indicator material, fun stuff like comic books and puzzles, those were the fun chapters to write, uh, and then a whole lot of mathematics, chemistry, um, lots of more technical scientific aspects of UEB code. And I'm gonna pass things over to Tina Siga to talk a little bit about how that development process went. Thanks, Sam. Hello, everybody. So as Sam mentioned, we have uh, quite a breadth of knowledge that's covered in this course. And uh, so the first thing we did for the development of the course was to review the rules of UEB and guidelines for technical material, combing through those manuals very carefully, looking at all the concepts that were covered, and we listed them out. And from this master list of all the concepts, we started grouping them together. Um, things that were either similar or related or that had to build on each other in some way. And so from that, we were able to develop, um, further condense it down and start developing the, you know, loose outlines for the different lessons. Um, so we did this for quite a while. And uh, once we came up with our initial outline for all the different lessons. There's three principal authors and we basically went off and each took our lesson and we worked for a while and worked on the rough drafts. Now, after we got through that initial period, then we came back together 
and started having roundtables where we would work as a team, basically going through each lesson one by one, looking at reading it through start to finish and then looking for any kind of gap in the concepts or just gap in the language or anything that needed to be filled in, revised, deleted, you name it. We would work on that lesson and get it as complete as possible before it would be, when all that was done, then it would be sent out to some outside reviewers who would then provide us all of their feedback on what they thought needed to be changed, revised, deleted, or added, you know. So the round table sessions were very, very helpful for this. Um, and as Sam mentioned, you know, there are some gaps between the NLS, the literary course, um, the different subjects that were taught there versus, um, you know, the reality of what transcribers have to do every day. So with our discussions, uh, regular discussions with NLS, uh, we realized, hey, there's also some other more, not necessarily technical subjects, such as cartoons and poetry, but more advanced topics that they wanted to have covered as well. And they weren't covered by the literary course. So that's why this course is very broad. Um, uh, but NLS decided, hey, let's go ahead, let's stick it in there because we want, at the end of the day, we it's for certification and we want transcribers to be as fully versed in all of these things as possible. So that at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who transcribes what, or what part of the country they came from, you know, a student is going to get the high quality materials that they need and that they will be all reasonably transcribed in the same manner. So um, as you can imagine, with such a big course, there, are, there were challenges along the way, one of which being that we had, you know, three separate authors. So that was a bit of work to kind of reconcile the different writing styles that we each had. Um, and also things like some of the different math topics. Uh, as you may know, some, some things in math can be transcribed more than one way correctly. So that presented its own unique challenges when it came to, you know, how are we gonna incorporate this into the lessons in a clear and yet complete manner? Um, so bit of work there. So with that, I'd just like to say, cause we're close on time that there's a lot more details you also find in the paper. Please check out the paper and we look forward to your questions. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Samuel and Tina. And as you, as you said, Tina, yes, it's, it's important to actually have um, accurate and correct textbooks if we actually want our students to, to learn the, um, the material correctly. So thank you for that. And then um, our fourth paper of this session, oops, yeah. Our fourth session is presented by Donald Fitzpatrick and Azeda Nazimi. Is, is Azeda with you today, Donald? No, Azeda's not. Oh, yet. okay. Um, on Euromath, enabling mathematical con communication between teacher and student using UEB. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, it's lovely to be with you all this evening. Um, or good morning in the morning as, as, or afternoon, wherever you are. So Euromath was a project which was funded under the Erasmus Plus uh, funding program of the European Union. And we set out to create a tool which would enable student and teacher or two students 
or parent and student to actually communicate mathematically. And we chose one of the mediums we chose to actually to, to do that in was, of course, UEB. We started off and we carried out some initial research across Ireland, the Netherlands and Poland, which are the three partner countries in the project. And that research very much guided our future uh, in, the, in, in, in the, 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 the research itself. We initially set out to build on some tools which our Polish colleagues had actually produced called PLATMAT, which was an award-winning piece of research which was produced up until about 2015, 16, 17, that kind of era. And when we did our research, it became very obvious that students wanted things other than a Windows-based solution. They were using devices such as Braille note takers. They were using iPads. They were using, in some cases, Android devices and Macs, and of course, Windows machines as well. But it became very obvious that our initial design decisions were going to actually fall far short of what they needed. So we did a radical turn, either to right or left, depending on your perspective. And we came up with the notion of using a web-based solution built on open standards, such as EPUB3, MathML, and all of the other uh, tools, techniques, and everything else that the W3C advocate. So we built the tool. And of course, a core part of that was a UEB translator, which we decided to develop in DCU. My colleague Azadeh Nazimi was the principal developer on that particular program. And why we didn't use LiveLui was, well, we're academics. We have to just arrive by our existence somehow. And we wanted to try something that was a little bit different. And we went for a very lightweight, self-contained JavaScript library that could be embedded not only in our application, but after further development into others as well. I'm not going to dwell on the technical intricacies of what we did and what we didn't do and why we did it and why we didn't, because we're focusing here on the learning. And one of the very interesting things that I think came out of this research was a portion of the Euromath uh, system, portal, if you will, which uh, catered for teachers who had never taught blind students before. And each country was required to contribute 100 worksheets, we called them in the project. They were, for example, examples of best practice on how things could and should be taught uh, under different circumstances. Now, I will freely confess that we haven't got a lot of UEB, UEB content in there. But I think the demonstrators that we actually have created certainly highlight that a repository such as this, where a teacher who might have one blind student in their entire career can actually go to and say, oh, that's how somebody else in insert country name here taught a blind student the concepts underpinning trigonometry. Oh, I can use that too. So the objective here was to create a tool where a teacher could input their material in normal printed mathematics and we allow Unicode and or ASCII math entry. And that gets rendered into Braille, UEB of course, by our uh, tr lightweight translator. Uh, the students can also enter mathematics in UEB and have it translated back. Aside from the, the technical aspects of all of this, I think what's very important to realize that it became apparent through the conversation with teachers, students, and other people involved in the whole teaching of mathematics, certainly in the Irish context, and I believe in other countries as well, that many blind students actually feel, feel and felt a, a, a sense of isolation. In many cases, they're taken out of the class to do one-to-one -one mathematics uh, lessons with, for example, the visiting teacher in Ireland or a, math, a dedicated math teacher within the school. 
And in many cases, they actually lose that peer-to-peer -peer contact. So providing a solution such as this enables students and their sighted peers, blind students and their sighted peers, to actually engage. The student who can see can actually look at the screen and see what their friend is actually reading on their Braille display. And I think that's a very, very important thing because peer-to-peer -peer learning, as we're actually discovering, uh, is, prove is, is, is one of the most the best ways to actually learn this particular type or indeed any any content. We were slightly hampered in as a result of COVID by the fact that we couldn't get into some of the schools that we wanted to to actually test this. But I'll just conclude by saying that we did give this to one student in an Irish third level edu educational setting who used it to complete their first year mathematics course. And uh, somebody who shall remain nameless, but who might just be talking now, actually used the system to actually give a lecture to second year university students in an operating systems module last year. Um, it was very effective. I may as well say it. It was very, very effective. I needed to prepare some notes containing a lot of mathematical content. And uh, I prepared them and distributed them to the students and they could read them. And so could I. So it actually certainly made my life and my lecture uh, a lot easier. And it also made collaboration with the students a lot easier because they could query me on the contents of my slides and I could read them and so could they. We're very happy with the initial phases of this work. It's the project is actually concluded, but I'm very much hoping that uh, we can continue development and expand the number of resources in our best practice examples and expand coverage of our UEB translator because it certainly is incomplete and it could certainly warrant some more testing. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> <sighs> Excellent. Excellent presentations, all of you. Thank you so much. Um, so we, there are several words that I heard quite, quite often in, in session eight, as well as this, um, having to do with um, engagement was a word that I heard a lot, um, and access and lack of access, um, identity, and um, isolation and f feeling um, uh, part of a, a supported and part of a of a group. So I think there there are a lot of themes here that um, <clears throat> we heard over and over again with these with these these papers, um, and with uh, the uh, Samuel Folk and, and Tina's uh, Seeger's paper. Um, I think that was a a good lead into the discussion we're going to be having later on about um, the guidelines for technical materials. And um, I know that they had some in their paper, some discussion about um, needs and things for, for that GTM. So I'm sure Kathy would, was paying attention to that. Um, but I'll, I'll open it up now for uh, questions first from delegates. Um, about the papers that we heard in this in this session. Kathy uh, Reese in Australia. Hi, Kathy. Hi. Um, I've got a question with the Clovernook uh, course, and I'm really very impressed. I love the fact that you're looking at formatting as well as code. I think that's so important. But looking at it, it's only available for American citizens or residents. 
is there scope for sharing this content with other Braille jurisdictions? Yeah, yeah, I, I got that. Um, well, the uh, the course itself, in terms of the qualification, um, you know, the NLS uh, for their other courses to actually earn the qualification, you have to be an American citizen um, because that's the way that the law is written here. Is that the, the actual qualification itself, uh, which is funded by you know taxpayer money, has to be for the U.S. citizens. However, the NLS has always had the course the course content posted online and freely accessible to anyone so that the actual course uh, materials themselves and the exercises and the lessons uh, can be freely accessed by anyone no matter what country they're in. So on the NFB's website for all the other current courses, you can currently access that information. I'm not sure what the um, uh, NLS's plans are long term for the qualification course, but my understanding is that the actual certification would just be for individuals uh, residing in the United States. Thank you. I'll, I'll uh, check it out. Other questions from delegates for this? James Bowden from the UK. I have hey, a question James? for you, Donal. Ahead. Yeah, but apart from, can I can I comment? You're very quiet. I don't know if everybody else has got the same. Um, I was going to ask you, Donal. Yes, I was going to ask you. You mentioned um, writing in in Unicode and in ASCII math. I was I was wondering, did you think about LaTeX? We did. Um, we went. We didn't go with LaTeX, James, because again, a lot of the macros in LaTeX can actually be very difficult to actually translate from. Uh huh. The way it's actually been designed, um, there's no reason that, for example, some of the other research that was actually used to go from LaTeX to Braille or to actually go from LaTeX to an internal system couldn't actually be used. So, for example, if you can go from LaTeX to Mat to MathML. Yes, then you can do it. Yes. Then you can do it very, very easily. But there was just so many unusual macros that one could actually come across in LaTeX that we, mm. Mm. within the very small time and budgetary thing that we actually had, we decided just to go with those. With, with, with those. Yeah. Because this this comes back to um, one of the comments that Jennifer Dunham was making yesterday, uh, it, particularly in the reverse translation back from Braille to print maths. Um, the Unicode symbols, that's the easy bit. It's the structure which does not have a direct Unicode. That's the problem bit. Totally agree. I absolutely agree. And it's, again... <laughs> I, I wish we could go back. I don't know how many, many years and ask people to use something like a content mathML instead of a presentation one, but we can't. And um, it, it's, it's the structure that actually was and continues to be our most challenging part of all of this. So I totally agree with you. Yeah. I think I would like to um, contribute some equations for you for testing, but I'll take that off the table with you. Thank Please you. Please do. We want, we, we're, it's exactly what we, we need. We need lots of equations to test it. Other questions first from delegates. I see we have a, an observer hand raised, but before we move to the observers, was there other, <clears throat> were there other? Um, I, I do, <laughs> before I hogged the, the mic again, um, I did want to um, ask, um, 
Natalie and then perhaps Susan and Sean too, related to um, the the amount of braille reading that seemed to be a key to success, as well as this this access to um, braille devices. Natalie, you mentioned that that could be a barrier for uh, older older people. And Susan and Sean, you made a very um, good argument for not having that variety available to them. That that you know they had one device that they used and. Um, and that was kind of what they had to, to come up with it. So I wonder if um, if you had additional comments about about that um, lack of access, both to um, you know to allow that amount of braille to to um, uh, increase skills and proficiency. Hi, it's Natalie from Canada. Um, so. In our study, definitely what we found is that people who read Braille more often achieve higher Braille reading speeds. It's not a surprise, but particularly if you read Braille daily. Um, and it's not just a question of, um, you know, that you encounter Braille in any way, shape or form. For example, some of our participants um, would read, you know, stated that they read Braille daily, but what they meant by that is that they access Braille on elevator buttons, for example. And so what we're really talking about here is, you know, those people who use Braille for um, more sustained tasks, whether it's even just reading for half an hour a day. Um, but certainly the more Braille you read, the better it is. And in terms of access to Braille materials, this is something that um, every participant highlighted, this idea that, you know, as you get older, there's this misconception that you won't be able to learn Braille or that you won't be able to achieve the same type of fluency or the same type of speed and accuracy. Um, and and what, what people really highlighted in their comments is that adults really don't have, particularly in Canada, don't really have a lot, a lot of opportunities to practice Braille between sessions as they're learning, but also once their rehabilitation training ends. And so the abandonment really comes from the fact that they don't have those opportunities to maintain those skills. And if you think about children, if they didn't have opportunities to practice their, their literacy skills daily, the same thing would result. And unfortunately, that, that seems to be a particular gap in adult Braille rehabilitation in Canada um, braille displays are not available for adults who are not working or who are not studying. And a lot of people who lose their vision later on in life are in that in-between period. And so the ironic part is that they're not eligible for those devices that could actually help them acquire the skills to get back to their life. Hello, Sean uh, in the UK. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, we have a similar problem here in that you get a Braille display if you're studying or if you have um, a job, if you're starting work, there are there are funding sources available. Uh, one of the the points we were going to make, uh, but our five minutes seemed to vanish in five seconds, so we never got to making it, <laughs> was that the Orbit Reader and other low-cost devices um, have really made a huge impact in the way Braille works at, at, the, at our, our school in particular, and maybe Susan will take that one uh, in a minute if, if, if we have time. Uh, my point I wanted to make as a, as a personal point, as a Braillist, uh, when I was learning Braille at school, 
the books I could read were circumscribed by what was available in a very small library, uh, which was quite sad. But also, Braille was just about reading books. Whereas now, as an adult, I use Braille when I'm playing board games with my family. I have a sighted daughter. She can't help it. She was born that way. It's not her fault. Um, but she's sighted, but we love her anyway. Um, and um, I read... Poor little I, thing. <laughs> I read... Um, uh, subtitles on films with languages I don't speak. I watched a fantastic series on Netflix uh, last week uh, in, in Arabic, uh, reading along, and it was brilliant. And I really enjoyed the story with the audio description, filling in the, the, the visual caps and the braille there for the subtitles. And so it's just having that variety of braille that isn't just bound to paper books anymore has really opened my uh, eyes, fingers, to to the, the places that Braille works. And I think when you come to a teaching environment and you can show that love for the medium to students, it lets them uh, appreciate it that little bit more, maybe. It's um, Susan Potter UK. Um, yes, during, uh, well, there are a couple of things that I've found. Um, students, uh, reading books, they don't like the heavy books and they don't like uh, the fact that um, there are, might be some rubbed down dots or, or whatever. During lockdown, uh, for those students who had a braille device and we really had been promoting um, orbits for students to, to get orbits as their own personal equipment. So when we had lockdown, for those students who had orbits or other braille displays, um, we were doing virtual teaching and we taught through um, braille displays and they were all all right for reading but we used the orbits when we could for writing particularly because it doesn't try to correct what you've written basically so um, people could write and then they could send their file to me and I could check it. Um, one of the things uh, is time and time again is the uniformity of the dots to help braille reading. And I have seen people um, who really disinterested before lockdown and because they've had to use um, their orbit reader particularly, I just named that because that's what we use. Um, they've really picked up uh, and I think it's because they have confidence that all the dots will be the same on their machine. Now, it is true that we make a sacrifice in this because <laughs> I was here last night. So it is true that we make a sacrifice about layout and stuff, but it was better than nothing. And even though we're not quite in lockdown now, we're still using braille displays to a large extent, simply because of the restrictions that we have in the classroom re-COVID and uh, simply because it means that we're not using communal equipment as much, uh, we're using individual equipment. I just will throw in very quickly, if I may, Susan, I was dreading the prospect of somebody using one of those spray bottles of sanitizer on an actual braille book um, because that would have completely ruined the dots. So we're quite lucky that's not happened yet, but uh, maybe it will if things carry on for much longer. We have tried to go digital, haven't we, where, where possible. And I think it's working quite well. Um, I've seen more students just in, in passing reading Braille this term than I have in, in the past couple of terms, I think. James Bowden from the UK. 
Thank you, James. We can hear you. A question for Natalie and also probably several of the other earlier speakers, if you're still around. What do you think we can do to bust the myths about Braille is this, that and the other? Sorry, I was muted. Um, <laughs> okay, so this is Natalie. Am I unmuted now? Yes. Okay, me. good. Okay. Um, yeah, that's a big question. Um, certainly, I know uh, within Braille Literacy Canada, this is something we've been trying to do um, in different ways. Um, I think, you know, thinking back to my study um, and, and how the participants talked about, you know, this perceived stigma that even some practitioners have, I think that's really worth thinking a lot about, uh, more about, because it isn't good, but we, we expect that the general public has misconceptions about blindness and about Braille and about all the symbols we attach to blindness. But we shouldn't be seeing that within our field. Even if it is a minority, that isn't something we should be seeing because that translates back to the client um, and it also ends up impacting professional judgment when you're trying to decide whether somebody should learn Braille, especially in the absence of other ways of assessing prospective Braille clients um, at the adult level, because there aren't a lot of, of strategies or evidence-based approaches. So I think it's a big question. I think uh, our Braille authorities, um, you know, we can think about ways to educate the public, but also going back to the, the training that um, professionals get at the university level. And I'm thinking particularly about um, vision rehabilitation practitioners um, that I think we need to, to maybe think about how Braille is being talked about within our field, especially as technology continues to evolve, whether those ideas we have about older people being less able to learn new skills, whether that's translating in the ways we talk and teach about Braille to future professionals. Thank you. Yeah, I, th I think the point about having role models as well is a really valuable one. Um, you know, we all hear stories about, you know, so-and-so has never met another blind person. And when they actually find one, they think, wow, I'm not alone. I can do the same thing as they do. Will they do it so much better than me or et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, thank you. Yeah, um, just a really quick point I wanted to, to raise about that. I actually had one participant who shared a really interesting story where she was very reluctant to learn Braille. And then she met other blind people. And she realized she went to a restaurant one day and she realized that although she was the only one with functional vision or some vision, she was also the only one who could not read a menu because everyone else had access to a braille menu. She could not read the print menu. And she realized in that moment that even though she had vision, she was disabled in that situation and her blind friends were not. And that was really what was a turning point for her. And a lot of the adult participants talked about things like that. So that connection is really important. Um, it's Kay Holbrook from Canada from the earlier session. <laughs> and I, I want to follow up on something that uh, Natalie just said about um, uh, professionals working with uh, individuals who are going to be Braille readers. And I think part of what we can do is advocate to make sure that the people 
who are being hired in those positions actually have qualifications because often their own qualifications um, are the things that might discourage them or encourage them to make good decisions and to and to have an attitude that's supportive. Um, so sometimes we fight that uh, for school districts and for agencies to hire people who actually have the qualifications that they need to do the job they need to do. Thank you, Kay. This is <clears throat> FM, and I was actually thinking a very similar thing. I was thinking about especially services for adults in, in, in the U.S., depending on where you live and whether you actually have access to somebody who even knows Braille. Um, I think because of different funding models in different states in the U.S., there <clears throat> very often there are occupational therapists and other people who are providing kind of daily living skills instruction who don't have a, a background in visual impairments and um, and may not know Braille themselves. So um, I, I think in the uh, past 30 years, I've seen a real decrease in the number of, uh, you know, what they used to call home teachers, you know, years and years ago, but, but um, certified rehab um, instructors who, who know and encourage and promote Braille. I accidentally muted myself. <laughs> um, I, I'm just looking to see whether other, um, we still have plenty of time. Um, were there other, I see two um, observer hands raised, but before we move to the three, um, were there other delegates who just wish to speak or can we move on to the, to our observers? Sean again in the UK, uh, if I may briefly. Yes, Sean. For, for Donald, really, about the Euromath project. I had a, a student last year whom I am kicking myself for not knowing about the Euromath thing before because he would have lapped it up. Um, how, how viable is the product? Is it something that is, people can use um, or is it still in the research phase? Sorry, I had difficulty muting. Is it viable? I mean, it, it's. It's viable if you accept the fact, Sean, that it is sort of what I would describe as, I would say it's in beta heading for release candidate phase, is how I would describe it. Okay. Um, it, I think he would jump at the chance, certainly yeah. to play with it, as would I. So thank you. That, that's, yep. Yeah. I know it's usable. I, we, 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 as I said in my little summary, we, we've had a, a student at a third level institution who actually used it, stress tested it and, and used it for us uh, for about three or four months to actually get through a first year undergraduate course in maths. Splendid. So, that's way above uh, at the average level of my students, but certainly, so, yeah, yeah, very good. No, to know. Well, that's we, wonderful. We'll chat me offline by all means. Oh, I think we're going to have a long chat offline. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> it's been a long time. A Thank you. Yes. <clears throat> Thank you. Let's Jen, our observe. Oh, I'm sorry. I can I just this, it's Jen. I just wanted to really quickly say um, there's a my educational background is linguistics and there's a concept in linguistics called uh, linguistic landscape and it talks about how language learners you know you have visual and auditory as well but access to the language in the environment around you and I think this really ties into a lot of the comments and uh, Dave Williams comment before as well that print readers see print everywhere and braille readers really don't have that to the same degree and so I think it's that's one of the challenges I think probably learning braille at any age is that you you aren't seeing braille everywhere in your environment it's getting better but I think that's just one of the um, one of the things that that we need to work on is increasing it in your home with labels and things but also just 
Braille and public signage menus, etc. Thank you, Jen. <clears throat> Don Michael Patrick, if I may. Oh yes, go ahead, please, Don. We had a wonderful event here in Dublin last January, and um, I brought my little eight-year-old, seven, eight-year-old in. He was seven at the time, and he sat down at a Perkins, and he had showed he'd seen me using Braille, obviously at home, but there was other children there and he sat down and he started brailing his name and he started doing things and then of course he had to bring it into school and it, it, it's just really interesting how it can grab grab people be, be it sighted children or, or, or blind children when they actually just see or indeed feel what a fantastic system braille actually is and how it can represent pretty much you know most things that we actually come across in whatever fields we happen to work in and I think the key to it is actually to make children aware of the possibilities of Braille as, as early as possible and to also make people, educators, be it mainstream or be it, be it other people who might be skeptical. If, if, I've, if, if I had a euro for every time I've heard, oh, well, you can't do that, Braille can't represent it, and you suddenly go, yes, it can, actually. So I was informed once that Braille couldn't represent music, for example, and then we, we, we proceeded to show the individual concerned Braille music. Um, so it's 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 crucial that people awareness of what the the the, the different things that can be represented that can be achieved with Braille. Um, it's it's very important that we actually make people aware of the possibilities of of the, the, this particular form of representation. Thank you. I, I we have about twenty minutes left, and we have five hands raised. Um, is it all right uh, then if we move to the observers then? Yes, um, we have a little bit less time than 20 just because we uh, have to get to code maintenance and real bonus oh, and stuff. Sorry. I thought I had, I thought I had, uh, I'm using that stupid old agenda again. Okay, fine. Right, I'll keep you on track. It's all good. Thank you. <laughs> um, all right. So we'll have to keep the questions and answers very brief, I'm afraid. Um, Jim McCafferty, um, your hand was raised first. Hello, I would just like to comment on something, following on from James Bowden's comment. I think really to promote Braille, we need more teachers. Uh, here in Edinburgh, there is a, a, a Braille class run in, you know, under normal circumstances, not at the moment, a very successful Braille class run by two former work colleagues of mine. And uh, that is, there's actually a waiting list for that, which, which is great. When I first went to school, I was taught by a sighted person, but it was the visually impaired teachers who encouraged me to read Braille and indeed go on to make a living for Braille, from Braille, which I've done for 40 years. Uh, so I think to try and get more teachers, and it's up to the visually, us who are visually impaired to just do what we can to promote Braille, ram it down people's throats, because I don't know what I would do without Braille especially with the pandemic, I find that because I'm not seeing so many people, I need more and more stuff in Braille just in case I have to access utility companies and things like that. And, you know, I, I just think it's a great system and that's why I'm taking part in this ICEB, ICEB General Assembly this, this week. Thank you for that comment. Um, I'm going to move on to Kim Kilpatrick, who has her hand raised. Um, if somebody could unmute. Oh, yeah, I'm now muted. Sorry. Thank you, Kim. Uh, 
My name's Kim Kilpatrick. I'm from Canada. I'm on the board of Braille Literacy Canada, and I just am so excited to be here with everybody. It's so fascinating. Um, I had a question for anybody, either on this panels or the previous ones. I was like Jen Golden. I was uh, driven to read, and and I found it easy to learn. I, I learned in grade one. I don't know how easy it was, but I don't remember it being hard. And I was soon reading way above my level and fast and all of that. And um, one of the things I was lucky to have is uh, a mom who learned Braille when I learned Braille. And so she labeled everything in our house. She labeled all the Christmas gifts, not just mine, so I could hand them out. She labeled, you know, put notes in my lunch. She did all of that. I just wondered for some of you who have done studies on kids learning Braille, have you ever... Uh, figured out if family members learn Braille, and even Natalie's study too, if people around you learn Braille and make Braille normal, does that mean that the person is a better and more competent Braille uh, user? Excellent question. Hi, it's Natalie. Hi, Kim. Um, so yes, so the response from family members was a really big theme in my study. So participants talked a lot about, you know, the level of support they received from family members, not just in, you know, actually physically like practical support, like getting to training and things like that, but even their perceptions towards Braille and this idea that family members could also carry a lot of misconceptions about Braille that end up influencing how that client feels about Braille themselves. And, and one of the things that um, was really highlighted is that we talk a lot about the importance of family members when we're um, focusing on children and Braille literacy in childhood. Um, but we don't really talk about the role of family members at the adult level. And often in rehabilitation, we focus on who's in the room during a training session, the client. But family members are playing a really big role in terms of how they view Braille as well. And even just some awareness would be very helpful for those adult learners to provide to family members about what Braille is, how to kind of respect the Braille materials they have in the home. Don't put a bunch of heavy things on top of it. Even just that level of awareness would be very helpful. Thank you. Um, we have two more hands raised, Mike Townsend and Debbie Brown. <clears throat> and um, Mike, since you so graciously. Um, oh, and Thomas, oh dear. Well, um, <laughs> Mike, if, um, since you graciously gave your, your time, yielded your time earlier, could you please um, uh, state your question um, as briefly as you can because there are other people. And I'm so sorry, but that's the five minute warning. Oh no, okay. Mike, you're on. Muted. There you are, you can hear you, thank you. Am I unmuted? You are. Okay, great. Um, Susan and Sean referred to the understanding of um, a wider understanding of documents more than just text but uh, layout and so forth and I've been reflecting on that and there are features of refreshable braille displays and also supplementary things that you attach them to that can assist folk to understand more of the layout of, of documents and or, or whatever the material might be so what I think is important is that we 
actually enable people to understand how they can use things like the panning keys, arrow keys, whatever supplementary keys and uh, other uh, items that there are on your refreshable brow display or what's it on your phone or your computer to get a wider understanding of um, the material that you're looking at. And that probably needs a bit of training because otherwise Braille becomes a very linear experience, just a burst of, of, of text. Whereas if you can use these keys, I've also used other devices that have got joysticks or other arrow keys as you can move around. Um, I also remember the Papenmeyer 3, 2D uh, device with a, a braille strip down the side, which gives a, 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 a second dimension to an understanding of, of the braille material. So it is important, I think, to help people to understand layout and spatial mm -hmm. concepts related to the material that they're looking at. And maybe that's another paper to, to look at how to develop understanding in that area. But I think it's, even the uh, the orbit has limited, but it does have ways of doing this to help folk understand more. So I know a lot of blind people do have um, spatial concept issues, but for, for those of us that can understand them, it's good to realize that um, material is more than just linear. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. Um, Debbie Brown? Had a question. There you go. I can. There you go. Okay. Yep. Um, I am. This is especially for Natalie um, dealing with um, older adults. Um, I am wondering, as I've had teaching blind adults, that some of them had been struggling their whole lives with print. They've been low vision probably for a long time, and even maybe as a child, and and. Uh, did you have to deal with sometimes even that their print literacy wasn't that great because for whatever reason, um, and that made braille literacy more difficult? Um, yes, yeah, so what's really interesting is that at the adult level in braille training, we historically, we don't ask about people's literacy experiences and we should because we know that your literacy experiences will influence obviously your your reading outcomes right and your your ability to to learn braille it might not be a question of braille it might be a question of literacy um but definitely the participants in my study talked about how their previous learning experiences generally did end up influencing their braille learning experiences so if they had very positive learning experiences associated with learning how to read, um, then they felt more posit positively about the braille learning process. And if they didn't feel very strongly about themselves as learners generally, that ended up um, influencing their, their perceptions as well. So a lot of participants kind of made connections with learning other things when they were younger, like learning how to tie your shoes or learning how to read print. You know, you start off with larger print and then you gradually uh, decrease to normal print and your fluency improves. And this idea that, you know, yeah, it's tough at first, but it gets better with practice. And if people feel that way because of their past experiences, it, it makes a very big positive difference. But we Traditionally, anyways, we people don't generally ask about those previous experiences as part of the assessment or planning process, and we definitely should be. That's the one-minute warning. Sorry, it wasn't very loud. There we go. Try it again. 
Do we have time for one more question? Thomas has had his hand yes. up patiently for a long time. Absolutely. Thank you. Thomas, please go ahead. My question is based in a situation where we have had a scarcity of uh, professionals who can teach maths. In the case where a sighted teacher is placed in a special school to teach maths to blind learners and it does no great, where to start? How can we best skill the educator to can actually reach blind learners? Is it a good way of teaching that teacher to read braille using his eyes? Thanks. Thank you. Donald or somebody want to address the, the teaching of math? In 30 seconds. I'm afraid I don't have sufficient knowledge of the of the the, the pedagogical the backgrounds of, <laughs> of of that kind of thing to actually be able to answer that question. I'm afraid. Sorry about that. Uh, this is FM, and I'll I'll just say I think a lot of it has so much to do with um, <clears throat> the concept development. We talked about this actually in session eight a lot when we were talking about reading comprehension. I think the same is true with with numeracy that. Um, uh, understanding uh, the concepts of things, um, spatial concepts, uh, number concepts, um, and um, lots and lots of hands-on experiences of, of uh, trying to um, manipulate um, the um, objects through, and um, I'm, I'm talking really fast because I know we're out of time. Um, Tina uh, Herzberg, I know uh, you and Penny have also done some some work about about maths. So perhaps um, there would be some way that we could share some of that uh, material through ICEB because I think it would be um, of great interest to to folks. Um, there was something that um, Fran Gentle had posted. I think that had been done through ICEVI. It was a website, Thomas, that was all about the teaching of math to um, children who are blind and visually impaired. And so um, that comes to mind as well. But I'm afraid we're absolutely out of time for, uh, let's all meet at the bar and continue to talk about these issues. But um, thank you to all of our presenters for session eight and session nine today um, and for the wonderful questions um, and, and, um, and participation by everybody today. And I'm going to hand it over back to, to Jen. Thanks, FM, and thanks, everybody else. Yes, this was fantastic. And this is why we really need to be meeting in person, because these discussions uh, can then just continue over drinks and food where we're all reading Braille menus. Uh, with that, uh, we are now going to have a little, um, a little, a short clip on Braille, Braille Bricks. This is our bonus session for today. It's Kathy Rundle. And um, I guess with that, I'm just going to ask Leona if, uh, Leona, could you play the Braille Bricks Braille bonus session, please? And while Leona does that, it's my duty to tell you that you're listening to live coverage of the 7th General Assembly of the International Council on English Braille. It is uh, coming up to 25 past 10. Uh, so we are a fraction uh uh, under time, but not by very much, and uh, we'll have a code maintenance discussion 
shortly. Uh, some really fascinating discussion to come out of all of this. Um, I, I, I wasn't quite sure what sort of discussion we were going to get because there was products and there was research and how does it all fit together. But somehow we managed to fit it all together. And people asked some really, really quite intelligent questions, didn't they? Yeah, I loved all the questions overall. I mean, I really loved how it turned into a very, I want to say broad discussion, but I feel like lots of people were contributing. I really liked seeing various authors of papers asking each other questions. That was really nice and just a high level of interaction. Yeah, that was particularly good. And seeing authors really bounce off each other. And so, you know, an author would answer a question and another author would come in. And I feel like the level of discussion we got, we got some really high quality um, answers because the discussion was allowed to be as good as it was. Right. I think it actually helped with the format of the discussion where everyone presented their papers and then it opened up for discussion. I actually think that was a really, really nice way of doing it because it kind of allowed for this. Yeah, absolutely. And and people were really relaxed and we got some fabulous uh, case studies out of it. I was particularly struck by uh, Natalie Martiniello when she talked about her uh, friend with low vision being the only person with low vision yes. in a load of blind people and went into the restaurant and realised that she was the only person who couldn't read the menu. And, and I feel sorry for the person, but I also think what a great way to talk about Braille, right? I think it really highlighted something to me, which is that one thing we talk about a lot in disability rights is that we're disabled by our environment. And I think that's a really classic example that actually the blind people in that situation who were Braille users were not disabled in that situation because they had access to Braille, which was kind of the point Natalie was making. Whereas somebody who had low vision, because they couldn't access the tools, then they were yeah, absolutely. And it's really good to to see that. The other thing that, if we were talking about myth-busting Braille, the other thing that came up was Braille can't represent that. And I thought that was, a, a, I've never heard it phrased like that, but it's really good. It's what we hear all the time. And it was good to uh, hear so much support for the fact that actually Braille can represent that. Yeah, I think it's so important. And in so many situations, like you said, it's something that we do hear a lot that, oh, well, you know, Braille, Braille just wouldn't be very good for that, you know. And actually, I think with creativity and with all these different tools that are being released and actually with the level of expertise that there is within the Braille community, Braille can do so much. It really, really can. There were some uh, good themes that came up yesterday that recurred. Uh, low-cost braille that raised its head again and interesting comments on electronic braille and refreshable braille there were some people who really prefer electronic braille because of the uniformity of dots and others who prefer hard copy braille I mean, I'm kind of a either or depending on the situation. There's times when I definitely prefer hard copy and there's times when I mean, I, I like electronic because I can carry 300 books <laughs> Yeah Absolutely. And as electronic Braille gets cheaper, then maybe, you know, electronic Braille will, will get better and um, and so on and so on. 
It's 28 minutes past 10. You're listening to live coverage of the 7th General Assembly of the International Council on English Braille. And we're going into our final uh, discussion now, uh, which is the Code Maintenance Committee, the second discussion of the Code Maintenance Committee, concentrating on uh, technical Braille. I should just apologise for the slight problems that we've been having with audio levels this evening. Um, I am doing my best to remedy those on the stream, but it does mean the audio level is possibly popping up and down a little bit. So I do apologise for that. Now we're going to pass back to Jen Golden. You're here and thanks, Leona. Um, for the last uh, portion of today's session, I'm going to hand things over to Kathy Reeson and uh, she's going to um, lead the um, Code Maintenance Committee focus on guidelines for technical materials and future directions. So over to you, Kathy. Thanks, Jen. So it's good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever. Um, since having the floor or the microphone yesterday, um, I have, so far, gone back to bed for an hour or so to catch up on some sleep, got up, showered, ate, checked my email, and then went to work for a few hours. We're not in lockdown. We're very lucky in South Australia. Created a large print copy of a Year 3 maths worksheet on slides and turns or transformations. This is the same worksheet that I produced the previous day in Braille, including tactile diagrams. Went home, spent an hour or so in the garden whilst my husband prepared dinner, did some preparation for this morning, set the alarm for 5am and went to bed. It's so different to what it would be if I was in London with you. So, the guidelines for technical materials. The, CM, the Code Maintenance Committee report is written by Phyllis and distributed with the General Assembly materials, gives a history of this revision which was initially begun as a separate process to the general work of the, of the Code Maintenance Committee. Bill Jolly began this process, but for various reasons had to step down. And Phyllis took on the lead with the assistance of Lorraine Banks doing the documentation. With Phyllis stepping down as the chair of the Code Maintenance Committee, I have now taken on this project as well as the general work of the Code Maintenance Committee. The revision of the guidelines for technical materials began with, the looking, with looking at section three, the signs of operation and comparison. This was completed and approved in October 2018 and can be found on the ICEB website. Two sections of the original section three, one being calculator keys and the other signs of omission were not included in this revision, but they're not forgotten. A new symbol has been assigned for the triple, triple vertical bar symbol, which is dots 3456, 456, 123, which was approved in August 2017, and it has been included in the updated version of section three. There are some, the Code Maintenance Committee has some current charges which relate to the guidelines for te technical materials. We have charge 21, which has revised the guidelines for techn technical materials and determined whether or not the new version will be incorporated into the rule book and replace section 11 or be published as an appendix or separate document. And of course, this revision is ongoing. Um, charge 23, determine whether or not to retain a couple of symbols which were included in the reader rules but not used in the current guidelines for technical materials, those being the calculator window 
and a symbol for normal, which is a superscript circle crossed by a horizontal line. We have charge 27, which is clarify the use of capital indicators in technical material, and charge 18, which is assign a symbol for the natural join in relational algebra. There are also some potential suggestions which have not at this stage been assigned as charges. So our current discussion. Currently under discussion in, is the section on signs of emission, which will, which will be moved, which is anticipated being moved from section 3.6 to section 1.8 of the guidelines for technical, technical material. The initial draft of section 1.8, this uh, science of emission, worked on the premise of including the visible space character in numeric mode, which meant that this rule, that a rule change had to be ratified first before being able to move forward. For those not knowing what the visible, visible space character is, it's a braille character dot 346, which is used for a space which has some significance other than a gap in the text. It is used for specific spaces in computer programming where spaces need to be counted. It is also used in general mathematics where a space is used to specifically show emission. Initially, using the visible space in numeric mode appeared to be a simple concept. But the question was asked that because the visible space character has the same meaning, both, both in numeric mode and, out, and in grade one mode, how, how do we determine the difference? A simple case in point would be the question, fill in the blank with the correct sign, which would be three space four equals seven. If the visible space is used, if it's if it it would theoretically be in in numeric mode. So, do we need to terminate numeric mode before the visible space because it actually represents an emitted an emitted sign as opposed to a, a number, or do we use something like the grade one indicator? Thinking through why, why did we desire to have the visible space in numeric mode? The main reason was for the situation where a number has one or more missing digits. The visible space did not break numeric mode. If the visible space did not break numeric mode, the one-to-one -one place value, which is really important when reading a number, correlation of each digit is maintained. The middle of the night brainwave came. Could we also achieve this if we use the numeric passage indicator instead? Checking back through the rule book, the answer is actually yes. In numeric passage mode, any signs which have numeric meaning are read as such. Any other signs which do, which do not which do not have numeric meaning are read as their grade one meaning. This means if you want to use the visible space to show a missing digit in a number, the numeric passage indicator allows that one-to-one -one place value correlation to be maintained. And we actually have been using that concept for a long time 
in vertical layout, but this but transferring that same concept to using in horizontal layout is possible. No rule changes are required to, to achieve this. Currently in circulation is a draft section on omissions, which has been written using the numeric passage indicator when there are omitted digits in numbers. And that is currently open for discussion. I did put out a question late la or last week, I think, was is there anyone who wants to continue pursuing the concept of the visible space in, in numeric mode? If we look beyond um, this section on emissions, hoping to, to, to finalise this in the near future, where do we go next? The initial concept was to look at spatial layout, which is section four, I think. But looking through the, through, through the tech guidelines and some background stuff, I actually think that we need to look at section one, which is general, general information. Because the questions that I'm constantly asked sets the time. And this, this section sets the tone for the rest of the document. So this, this section looks at spacing, grade one mode and grade one indicators, which is a big topic. Numeric mode, print symbols, format, that is choosing runover points and the use of the continuation indicator. Type forms, when to use type forms and not. Capitalization, when to use capital word or or not, the difference that chemistry or genetics has with this, plus the new section on, on omissions. One of the things that I looked at that I found in some of my research is that both UCAF and Barna have, 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 have a document, and I think they've used the same source document, which gives additional guidance on UEB mathematics which mainly encompasses this information in section one, but expands on it. And the fact that the need was felt for these to be written implies that this is an important section which needs updating, particularly I think the grade one indicators. So I now open the floor for discussion. Thanks, Kathy. We will uh, we'll start with delegates. Um, so again, just state your name and your country, and then Kathy will acknowledge you and you can speak. James Bowden from the UK. Thanks, James. Yes, Kathy, I absolutely agree with you. We would very much value um, uh, perhaps a, a consistent approach, particularly for, for grade one indicators. Um, one of our UCAF members worked out there were five different valid ways of writing the simple expression x plus y. They're all valid and they're all different. Um, so not only would um, this help students having some consistency, but it would also help um, all the transcribers and software manufacturers 
who need to work out how to do things as well. So, for example, should you use a numeric passage in such a case or should you use the minimum cells in such a case, etc., etc. So very much value having some guidance on that. I agree. I, I, I agree. I think, you know, sort of it's one of the things that in, you know, my team at, at work we often are discussing, should I, use, you know, which grade one, should I be using for this? So it's, you know, sort of, it comes up so often. So I think this is a really important part of the guide guidelines that we need to actually look at. So it, at UCAF, we are looking at our current guidelines, um, which are available on the UCAF website and wondering if actually what we've currently suggested is actually the best approach. And what we found is a slight tweak to our guidelines brings us in line to the current uh, expressions in the guidelines for technical material and also what, for example, Duxbury outputs. Um, but it's codifying that I think would be really helpful. Most definitely, yep. And, and I think having uniformity across, you know, sort of across all, all the Braille ju ju jurisdictions. Oh, sort yeah, of, you're absolutely right. And another another point that it would do as well is um, we here in the UK, um, you may have seen it, those who are subscribed to the UEB ED email list, you occasionally get the questions, I'm stuck on exercise such and such in the <laughs> uh, UEB online course. It won't let me go through. And almost always it's a question of getting the wrong grade one indicators. Absolutely. Most definitely. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Is there anyone who's got a an opinion, a strong opinion, one way or the other, on the concept of the visible space with numeric mode? It's James Bowden again. I didn't want to. I don't want to hog the microphone, but I'm, I'm thinking I want to you look may. at the. I want to look at the current draft again. But I think what you said about actually we can achieve this just with numeric passage mode, that really might be a sensible way forward, um, and it might even mean we can re reverse the change to Rule Six in RUEB as well, perhaps. Yeah, it, it, it certainly means we don't have to actually change anything in in the rule book as such so it's uh which you know change changes to uh when, when you change some of the and it, and it is a fundamental rule change and often it can have ramifications down down the track which you may not necessarily be able to see so to not change the rules is actually a, a strong way to go in my view jen golden from canada Yes, Jen. I just wanted to say that I I agree with with James and with you that and yeah, changing something that's fundamental can have ripple effects, and so I just wanted to add support to that. The Bana document you mentioned actually was sort of based on and adapted from the UCAF one with with UCAF's permission. Uh, just thought I'd highlight that, and Canada did have some input on the Bana document as well. So. 
Yeah, and certainly I'll be looking more in depth on those two two documents because they they will actually assist in drafting up, you know, how, how we write section one, which can then go up up for discussion to see, you know, sort of what other jurisdictions feel about, you know, sort of what has been mooted there as well. This is anyone the, else? Yeah, sorry. Hi, <clears throat> yeah, um, and I was going to say that the um, the the banner document we had uh, the the board had um, approved it for as, as sort of like a provisional guidance, which is um, how we put things out, and then we invite comments on it. And I've actually been quite surprised that we've received no comments at all <laughs> from anyone. So I don't know if that means that they're not using it or they don't find it helpful or what, but we um, do look forward to hearing more from UCAF about their um, tweaks, as James was saying, and <clears throat> whether that would also help with, because the, our big issue was, again, the, the consistency, uh, especially for testing materials. That was um, in, in the US, um, certain grade levels are for uh, testing are, are mandated by the federal education law. So um, we there was a real push <laughs> to make sure that the um, materials that students get for their standardized testing are are um, as or, or what they see in their textbooks. So I do think too that the new course that we heard about in session nine will help with that that level of consistency in creating materials. But um, I also hope that we have some strong guidance guidance from, from the GTM as well. Um, I'd also be interested in knowing the impact of using this passage indicator, the numeric passage indicator as far as um, reading, um, as far as in, interpreting and, and length of expression for uh, students who are using braille displays and, and that kind of thing. So some, it would be interesting to do some user testing as well. FM, I shall make sure that you see our um, updated guidance when we have something for you. Thanks. Yeah, there's a lot of work to be done ahead, I think. <laughs> but it's good work. It, it's, you know, so I think the more we discuss it, the more we open it for discussion, and the more that we hear people's what people find and discover, we could, you know, sort of, we get the best outcome. You know, sort of, uh, one person make, you know, one or two people make making a decision doesn't doesn't give a broad spectrum of of you know, sort of how things are used, real time. You know, sort of, um, particularly, you know, particularly people who are exposed to lots of levels of of maths and technical material come across a, a broad variety of challenges of, of how to express things. And we really need to see those broad variety, you know, sort of that come through. 
and particular, you know, so and I think one of the things that is uh, very important in this guidelines for tech, you know, sort of the, this update is that we have as many, you know, sort of have a, a broad variety of examples. And so I think that's one thing that I'm, I'm really happy for people to email me the examples. I've found this in a in a book that I'm doing or a worksheet that I'm doing or whatever. It was challenging. Send me the you know send me the examples because that's how we know what we what we have to actually deal with. Now I think I've seen a couple of hands from observers. If there's nobody else on the delegate list, wish to speak. I, I, James Bowden again. I do have other comments, but let the observers go first. To I'll just you, Jody. Yeah. Oh, hello. Um, yes, yeah, sorry. Hi, Jody. Hello. How are you? I don't want to hog the floor because this was just something that you know this topic just reminded me of something I saw recently. Um, just the whole. Sorry, the visible space is not something I've used a lot, um, and I it did sort of occur to me when I was needing to transcribe something recently. For example, seven percent is equal to, and on the numerator you have seven, um, the denominator you have a square box, and I just wondered um, when you have a square like that, would you tend to use the visible space there, or because it's a square in the print, would you do you know the shape? Um, I just found that when I brailled it, it was quite clunky, you know, and I sort of thought, oh, the, the visible space could be neater here, but, you know, uh, would you sort of um, suggest that we would go for this, the shape being the, you know, in that? Yep. Then you need to close the, sh the, the yeah. shape. The current draft of the guidelines is you know, sort of in in general, you follow what what is what is in print. So uh, there there are examples there which which show using the box. Yeah. But there is also the provision that uh, you can use the visible space as a general sign of omission to mm. either facilitate your ver vertical layout or to save considerable space. So yeah. You are looking at, say, you know, sort of, but you also have to balance that out with who is going to read it, what is the context in which they're going to be reading it. If it's going to be in a classroom situation where it's likely to be where the box is going to be, you know, referred to, you either need to have a, a, you know, a, a transcriber note to say a box has been replaced with visible space or you use the box, you know, sort of. There is that from a transcriber. I box, but I thought, oh, it's a bit clunky because it was a complex fraction. And um, yes, yeah, it is complex. It is it is clunky. Yeah, yeah boxes are clunky. <laughs> yes. Oh, thank you. So yeah, I'll just watch this space. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I might email you a draft, Jody, <laughs> so you can have a look. Thank you.
Did, did you want a question from Hattie as well? Yep, yeah, I'll have Hattie. Um, I think we have the same problem. So she's unmuted, but we can't hear her. Yes. Sorry about that. Um, Morning, Hattie. Good morning. (laughs) Um, um, I'm thinking about grade one symbols and just wondering if uh, the priority is fewest cells or ease of reading and thinking and a more, more producing um, Braille. So I'm thinking when a, when a student is um, writing down a fraction, they've got to decide at the very start of their writing going, okay, am I going to have one grade one at the start or two grade ones to say it's a grade one word? And that's so. very valid is, yes, um, are we looking at ease of reading, ease of writing or minimal cells? It is and that is actually part of the discussion. I, you know, sort of, I certainly, uh, I haven't looked in depth at the UCAF stroke BANA documents and I need, you know, sort of, we need to look at those to analyse what they have suggested, why they've suggested it and how, you know, sort of whether or not that, does that fit in with ease of reading or cell number, you know, sort of lack of cells or, or whatever. So we... We do that. And I do think there are two sides to technical materials. There is the reading side and there is the writing side. And um, as you say, Hattie, you know, sort of when, you know, sort of sometimes I think uh, for students writing it, they may prefer to actually write it with grade one passage. So, so okay, I don't need to think about grade one indicators from here on out. But... But from a reading side, from a transcription to being read, you can, you know, sort of make those decisions quite, uh, quite, you know, sort of succinctly. So, you know, it is um, a code which is being written as well as being read, and we've got to take that into account. Do you want to say anything to that, Hattie, or you want to? Um, uh, yeah, no. It's, I just just wanted to get the sort of general opinion of of because um, <clears throat> it would also uh, be easy to have a consistent translation uh, software that if it was you know every time you've got a fraction or a square root or something, it's always grade one word, even if you don't need that second grade one word. Yeah. And the students so, seeing that all the time. So when they're entering it on their devices, they can go, all right, I know I'm going to have something complicated. Grade one word. Yeah. So as I say, that's that's going to be that's going to be interesting discussion as as it's written. And I, I think it'll um, help help with writing the, the guidelines for te- te- technical material, but also then help, you know, Barna and, and UCAF's view on on it, as well as Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Ireland, you know, sort of, let's, you know, sort of, it becomes a, a whole thing. I'm currently brailing the phrase five-minute warning. Thank you, Jen. You're welcome. <laughs> okay. Uh, we've got, uh, 
I think I saw another couple of hands there, Leona. Yeah, I'll just unmute George Bell. Thank you. Hi, am I coming through all right? Yes, no worries. Yeah. Morning, George. <laughs> morning, Ka morning there, uh, Kathy. Or afternoon um, or whatever. Oh, well, yes. yeah, well, it's uh, late evening here. Um, one thing I wanted to, to, to bring up, because I know you and I have talked about it, and James knows my views about it, I think we agree as well, um, is the question of terminology. Now, if we take, for example, um, I'm sitting here, you know, explaining to somebody what a, uh, you know, a, a, in word, and if I start talking about the terminology you use for, you know, visible species or whatever, um, I've got to remember, no, 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 it's not that expression in word. It's, it's either a non-breaking space um, or a hard space, because that's the terminology that's used throughout the world. Now, can we somehow try and get these, you know, these things together? Because one of the advantages that I'm seeing when I'm saying to people, look, you need to put a hard space between the spaces in a telephone number, if you want to get it correct in Braille, the, the, there's usually a horrid response until I explain that. Did you also realize that by putting that hard space in, your telephone number won't break over two lines or even two pages? Ah, I see where you're coming from, is usually the response. So you yeah. see the, the dilemma I've got and all these different terms trying to... Uh, I, I fully agree. One of the things I think with, with the visible space, it is actually a Braille-specific concept. It's not um, because, and, and also is, is, you know, so when you look at computer programming, sometimes you'll have little funny symbols to show spaces um, along the bottom of a line or something, and it is used for, in that context. But, but it is a Braille-specific concept where, this, this space we see in print or produce produce is shown in a word document or or something else is actually not just a space between uh, two words or two concepts it actually is is being used to show something significant so it is a, a, a braille specific concept it, there isn't a word equivalent of it I think um, I think we need That's some not examples. in my current. Hmm? I think we need some examples, you know, comparing when you're in a Word document, et well, cetera, well, and you well, want to. Well, um, uh, it's, not in, it's not in in the current document, but it was in, in some background uh, discussion I had I had with someone on this thing where I did up a, a mock which showed spaces, but to show the space, it, it shows like a greyed out, uh, rectangle in print. Now that is a space. It, it's a grayed out rec rectangle. Now in Braille, we would use the visible space character for that. So um, the numeral three, four, five with the four missing. So you've got three space, three space five. That might be shown, you know, sort of in a, in a different way, and we use the visible space to show that missing digit. So it's a Braille-specific concept as opposed to a print concept, the visible space character. Yeah, but if you're I'm a programmer... Sorry, to, oh. sorry, George, finish your thought, but I just it's one minute 
until okay. time. Um, I think what we need we need are, are examples so that if somebody's uh, working inward and needs this real specific concept to be translated over, programmers who've got to work on this code will understand what we're talking about. That'll, that'll be something that I think I'll have to discuss with James is 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 how we do that from a translation yeah. perspective. I think James can explain it a lot better than I can. <laughs> I, I think what we do. I think what we do, um, Kathy, is find some Unicodes which which are used. I've seen uh, it's like an underscore with little tick marks on each corner of it. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure that has a Unicode oh, sign. Yeah. So, we'll, so we'll, you know, so that's 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 some discussion to come. Yeah. Okay. Is there thank you. Hand there, Leona. I think, unfortunately, we have to. Um, we're out we are, of time. Yes, Kathy. I'm sorry. Is there anything that you like a final comment you wanted to make before I uh, close the? Um, I I think the final today? comment is uh, watch this space. Um, for those of you who are, you know, sort of members and, and observers on on the listserv, please please give us your comments. Please. Please contribute. Please do that because it's the best way of getting this sorted. And, and as I said yesterday, I will be calling a meeting of the members of the Code Maintenance Committee and we will be looking at, at you know, the charges and, and where we go and, and ho hopefully getting some resolution on, on what's all already up there. So thank you. And uh, oh, I will be going back to bed for a little snooze. <laughs> Before getting up and going to work. <laughs> Again, Wonderful. <laughs> wow. That's just, you just, I'm kind of getting, you sound very busy. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm getting tired listening to you. I'm like, no, 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 that's not what I mean. That sounds really bad. Um, thank you very much, Kathy, for that. Uh, just, leading us through that and for that discussion. It's really exciting to see uh, what's going to be coming up um, and the, uh, the CMC and the uh, guidelines for technical materials. So with that, um, as I said, we have sort of reached the end of our uh, three-hour tour, our uh, day four of the ICEB General Assembly. Christo, if you'd like to uh, have yourself on, be on standby to declare the meeting adjourned, I just will take 20 seconds to thank everybody for uh, attending, for participating. Thank you, delegates, observers, and presenters, and chairs, and I know there's some overlap there. And so thank you, everyone. Just a quick set the stage for day five, our final day. It's hard to believe. Uh, we're going to have the resolutions committee uh, just report, and uh, we will introduce the incoming executive, and there will be some closing remarks and, and and a few other things. So definitely come back tomorrow. Um, we will look forward to seeing you here again the same time uh, tomorrow, whether it's uh, whatever time of day it happens to be for you. So um, thanks very much, everyone. And Christo? Thank you from my side. Thank you very much for all those very interesting papers and for the lively and engaging discussions it has been a fascinating evening for me. Um, so all drive home safely and we'll hear you all in 21 hours again. Bye for now. Thanks, Christo. 
Chris Dodd-Lurk from South Africa, President of the International Council on English Braille, bringing to a close today's coverage, well, today's uh, session of the General Assembly of the International Council on English Braille. The Zoom meeting is just about to be closed. The time is at four minutes past 11. And uh, this is live coverage with Matthew Horsepool and Holly Scott-Gardner. Um, I'm just going to stop my speech from uh, announcing who's leaving the meeting because this is <laughs> this is very distracting. There we go. I'll fix that now. So um, that Code Maintenance Committee discussion, uh, considerably shorter than the previous Code Maintenance discussion. I mean, we knew this going into it. Um, and I sort of thought it could have perhaps been a bit longer. I really enjoyed it. That, that was my personal perspective. It was... Um just so interesting and there were so many things that I thought oh, I want to hear more on this this is really good it, it was actually really exciting and I, I know that sounds strange but I, there was this point brought up about that you could write x plus y I think or something like that and you could write it four ways and they would all be valid and actually the fact that people are making these kinds of decisions about braille and that braille is evolving just to that level of detail and that we get to see it as it happens even if we you don't see it you know happening at these meetings but we're seeing the kind of discussions that are going on to me that's so fascinating yeah and not a little empowering i remember seeing it when i you know when i first came to this a few mm. years ago sort of being a bit overwhelmed at the level of decision that was being made and then came the realization that actually I'm one of the people making the decision. And then I felt pressurized into making the right decision. And then I sort of looked and went, yeah, but this is actually really cool. Like it's actually real people who are looking at this code. It's not some big, massive organization that's nameless and faceless and, and you know, only comes out when it wants to ruin our braille code. <laughs> yeah, I think it's so important to, to recognize that, that actually these are just people who, who are knowledgeable who are experts and who really care actually about getting it right and I think that's what's been so clear to me at least throughout this whole general assembly is that actually everyone is so enthusiastic everyone's doing this because they believe in it because they fundamentally think it's right to give it the care and attention it deserves Yes, and I think the other thing that came out of that discussion for me more so tonight than at any other time um, not to say that it doesn't happen at any other time, but it was really apparent tonight. Um, the spirit of collaboration between countries and also a real insight into the relationship between the country Braille authorities and the International Council. Uh, as in, they were talking about the UCAF guidelines, which uh, I've seen and uh, am involved in updating, and the and the fact that the Braille Authority of North America borrowed the UCAF guidelines, and and that happened for a number of things. They've done that for French as well. They for foreign languages, they borrowed our guidelines, and um, and then the fact that when ICEB are talking about how they're going to update the code, those guidelines that we national Braille authorities put out. Those guidelines form part of that discussion and, in fact, almost form the basis of that discussion. So it's not just a, a, a one-way relationship where ICEB decrees that this is the code and then the Braille authorities have to work out how to implement it. If the Braille authorities work out how to implement it, then that makes its way back upwards. Yeah, I think that was made very, very clear. And I think 
what you said about countries working together is so important and has become so, so apparent to me. I mean, I sort of had this idea that everyone was talking. You know, it wasn't just countries making their own decisions. There are, there are differences between the countries, but it wasn't just that nobody wants to work together, but actually seeing the level at which people work together. And when you bear in mind as well that everyone who sits on the committees for example, the Code Maintenance Committee, you're going to have people from different countries, but they all have this goal of really collaborating to build something that works really well. And I really like the point that it's about listening to people and to their perspectives and for people to bring new queries to this committee and say, actually, I've noticed there isn't really a rule for this. And then the committee will think about it. And that in itself is, well, I think it's exciting and it, it's positive. Yeah, and a fantastic learning experience for everybody on the committee. And, you know, the fact that we can send in examples and talk amongst ourselves. And actually, sometimes, you know, a rule is made and then an example comes up, which actually proves how ineffective the rule is. And then another one comes up and then another one comes <laughs> up. And before you know it, you realise you've made the wrong decision. And and the, there's, there's talk on the table about reversing some of those decisions if they genuinely are felt to be uh, short-sighted in hindsight and that's good as well because it mm -hmm. demonstrates that we haven't just got this code because there was a short-sighted decision and now we can't really do anything about it right exactly it it, it really is evident that you know you guys are human and sometimes you'll make decisions and then go oh actually let's change this but I think the fact that you will change things is a really important part. It's not, well, we made this rule, so you must follow it even if it's a bad rule. It's actually, okay, we made this rule. We thought it was going to work really well. It isn't, so let's go back and look at the rules. And that, to me, speaks volumes about how much everyone cares about Braille and the fact that people aren't doing this just to say, oh, look, I got to make loads of Braille rules. They're doing it to actually make Braille better. Yeah, absolutely. It's... um. 10 past 11 and you're listening to some analysis following the uh, the session this evening of the 7th General Assembly of the International Council on English Braille. Just looking back at the whole day, it seems to have been a really collaborative day-to-day -day on so many levels. Collaboration between Braille authorities and ICEB, collaborations between countries, collaborations between speakers, uh, really drawing out themes you know there's there's obviously going to be some link between for example Donald's paper and the the code maintenance committee discussion that followed so a really smooth agenda I thought today um was there anything that came up that we haven't discussed that you feel like we ought to discuss um I don't know honestly I, I I would agree with you overall I think it was a really good day I think it went really well and I mean it's kind of building on what we said yesterday about everyone's really settled into using zoom and if someone makes a mistake on zoom it's almost like oh well people just kind of laugh and move on it's not oh no I you know I ruined everything because I think everyone's just accepted that well, technology is is tech so you know that that seems much more settled now and i do think it really built on yesterday and coming into today's it's just been such a nice vibe and and a really good feeling i i don't know that there was anything there was certainly nothing that i thought oh this is a problem everything was just really nice no absolutely i think the quality of questions today was very high 
And I think that really sort of drove the discussion. And uh, there's there's not an awful lot that came out of today that's been left unanswered, I don't think. I would agree with that. I think mainly the only things are really some of the code maintenance stuff. And the answer couldn't have been given today. It's just, okay, this shows that they're on the right track and they need to keep on building, which, I mean, to me is, is still a good answer. Absolutely. So on that note, uh, we will look ahead to tomorrow. And it's very strange because for the past few days we've been talking about, well, tomorrow we've got papers on this subject and we've got all these speakers and yeah. uh, and all of this. You know, it's day four already. Um, tomorrow is the final day. And I'm, I'm a little bit sad about the fact that tomorrow is the final day. I am. I've this, you know, I've said several times on the stream, this is my first general assembly. This is my first real anything to do with ICUB and Braille at this level. And it's been such a rewarding experience. And I, I just feel so thankful that I got to be a part of it. If, if just in this small way, you know, to be on the stream and to have been able to watch all the presentations, it's been really, really incredible. And I, yeah, I would love it to be twice as long. <laughs> twice as long, twice as many presentations, twice as much discussion, and uh, really looking forward to the next one in 2024 when we get to be in person somewhere. That will be really great because, you know, so much of that discussion could have carried on in the bar if there was a bar, and, and there isn't, which is a little bit <laughs> sad. So tomorrow we look at the resolutions, uh, of which there are eight resolutions uh, on the table, up from six in 2016. And some of those resolutions are going to be looking at uh, things that were resolved in 2016 that sort of didn't quite happen. So there's a, there's a bit more in terms of you know structure of those resolutions. Um, they've been clarified a bit and, and expanded upon a bit. Um, there's a resolution uh, to do with LibLui, I know, that, that's coming up tomorrow, which will be good because it's good to sort of strengthen that resolution. Um, hopefully we'll get some people. Uh, we had 85 on Zoom today, which is about the same as for the other three days. Uh, absolutely fantastic to have had participation from Colombia today. It'll be interesting to see whether our international friends who are not member countries stick around tomorrow um, I don't know how other Braille authorities make their policy, uh, but I mean, perhaps it would be interesting for them to see how we make our policy. I mean, I would find it interesting, but I am a policy kind of person. So, but I mean, I, I hope some people at least stick around and say, you know, actually, this is this is kind of cool. Yeah. So it's resolutions. That's a whole uh, hour and a half session to deal with eight resolutions. So hopefully that will go nice and smoothly. Uh, we'll introduce the incoming executive properly. We heard from Judy Dixon briefly today. We'll hear more from Judy tomorrow and about what her plans are for the next five, four years in, uh, in office at ICEB. And that will be very exciting. I have no idea what she's going to say. I mean, I, I sort of know what she's going to say, but she hasn't circulated a report in advance or anything. So this will be, uh, it'll be interesting for all of us. We look ahead to the 8th General Assembly and we have some closing comments and uh, thank yous and farewells. So that's what's happening tomorrow. 
we will start the stream uh, about the same time tomorrow, about half past seven. Although uh, be be tuned in from quarter past if you want to catch the very start of the stream because we may start uh, a few minutes early tomorrow just looking at all the resolutions on the table and, and how much time it's likely to take to go and analyze all those and, and work out what's the same and what's different and how it all works so uh, yeah join us again tomorrow for the final day of coverage when we're going to look at the resolutions and uh, for now I've been Matthew Horsepool and I've been joined by Holly Scott Gardner thank you very much for listening and we'll see you tomorrow.